The problem is not the policy that they believe they have in place. The problem is the policy that has settled into place through the bureaucracy of uh, the, the corporate inertia. Uh, you, you know, it's one thing to say we want to compensate uh, uh, creators for uh, the characters that they create. And so we have this this process, you know, that's very that we feel is very fair to, to uh, all a creator has to do is provide a contract, you know, provide a request. And I mean, it all seems very nice, you know, but it's it's in the execution that things become problematic. And I don't think that anybody at D.C. was really aware of that in the visceral way that, that my uh, Tumblr post, post laid it out uh, or the, or were really aware that their uh, approach to derivative characters could be perceived the way that my my Tumblr post had had uh, laid it out. One of the things that uh, came up in conversation was just was that they feel like they they got a way to compensate people for derivative characters, um, and as they explained it to me, they kind of do. Problem is that it's not really clear how that's supposed to work on a functioning basis, um, and. I don't think that the people who they put in charge of executing that policy were even aware that that policy existed. So uh, it's a communication issue, you know, I mean, and and I think to be to be I was really, really touched and and very uh, uh, flattered, you know, that they reached out to talk to me about it. Uh, I I don't want to sound like, you know, I never talked to them. They never talked to me. And as a result, I went off half cocked and I, I, I did try to address this with D.C. For, for several years, dealing with the people who were in charge of executing this policy. And what I got back was the kind of stonewalling that led me to uh, express the frustration that I felt uh, in my original summer post that has gotten the response that it's gotten. And I think that took D.C. by surprise when it really actually shouldn't. But again, as I say, I don't think they really were aware of how things were being executed at the uh, at the at the, uh, uh, you know, at the street level of, of, of this policy. Back to the bin. I am here to uh, talk about comics and eat a uh, little Red Baron personal pizza, and uh, I'm all out of pizza. So, <laughs> Alrighty, sir. I'm ready so, when you are. Let me bring it in. <clears throat> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Back to the Bins. Tonight we have a special unnumbered episode in an effort to stave off episode 200 until we're ready to actually record it. And I am Paul Spataro, and I'm joined today by my buddy Michael Bailey. Yes, uh, I guess I could be called not Doctor Bill in this one. <laughs> well, now now you you know we, we're starting to to feel out your availability a little bit, and maybe you'll become more of the semi regular <laughs> that we've talked about you be being uh, in the past because uh, I enjoy getting you on, and hopefully we can do this a little bit more regularly than we have the last oh two years or so. <laughs> Absolutely, and if you want me to tell an anecdote from my life in the middle of the episode uh, to to kind of get the the real life, if we did real life with Mike Bailey, would Doctor Bill's head explode? <laughs> 
Probably. A little bit, maybe. He'd so be sitting there listening to the show and you'd just see like a tear rolling down his cheek. <laughs> nah, he's having a rough time. I'm not going to do that to him. But uh, tonight we're joining the very, very widespread uh, podcast bandwagon that's jumping on the cause for uh, Jerry Conway and, and his recent uh, statements to the press and his issues that have come up with uh, creator rights and... We've talked about creator rights in the past quite mm-hmm. a few times, but it has actually been a little while since this topic has come up. And I think Jerry puts an interesting perspective on it. And I think anybody who's listening to the show right now, do us all a favor and pause this. Go listen to the Fire and Water podcast where yes. they interviewed Jerry and then come back and listen to us. Yeah, it's it's you know, I don't want to I don't want to feed into uh Shag's ego any more than I absolutely have to. I mean, I'll 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 tell Rob he's great all day long, but you know I gotta I gotta you know Shag's got you know the 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 god complex as it is, <laughs> uh, and and the and you know to have him on views anymore. I mean it, it, it seriously. I mean it's like I gotta go through like thirteen agents just to talk to the man. And, <laughs> when we had him on here, uh, I think I asked him if he wanted to come on at like the very beginning of August, and we weren't able to record until December. <laughs> so it, it it took a while. He's a busy man. He used to tell me he couldn't do reviews regularly because he had too much going on. So there you go. Um, and he would shoot back to that. Well, if you did it regularly, I would be on it regularly. So, you know, touche to that. But no, it's it's an excellent, excellent interview with Jerry Conway, who is one of the nicest guys to talk to in general. And, and what I walked away from listening to that interview with was I really had a tremendous amount of respect for Jerry's perspective on this thing. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I, like I, I, you know, we've again we've talked about this in the past, and I've always felt like you know, uh, I understand the creator's displeasure, but that's life, <laughs> and the company owns the property. Yeah, it's 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 kind of different with what's going on with Jerry compared. And he kind of even talked about this in that interview a little bit, you know, when Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and Bob Kane and, uh, you know, and Jack Kirby and all those people, you know, were producing comics in the golden and silver age. One, I didn't think they had any concept that these characters would really live on beyond a couple of years. I mean, the fact that Superman was successful was a surprise. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that was just how business was done. Am I saying it's right? Absolutely not. Uh, but, you know, the Siegel and Schuster case is kind of different because with that and kind of with the Kirby case as well, but that seemed to have been settled more amicably than what happened with the uh, with the Siegel estate yeah. is, is that, you know, you're not dealing with Jerry. You're not dealing with Jack. You're dealing with their heirs. And that's... You know, on one hand, you know, if I had created something and I have children and a family, I would want them taken care of. But on the other hand, they didn't create it. On the other hand, Joanne Siegel supported Jerry all those years and was his rock. On the other hand, she charged Joe Schuster $1,000 a month after they got the deal brokered for her, you know, fee or whatever. So, you know, that's a complicated case. But with with what Jerry was talking about, is pretty clear-cut contracts signed back, you know, in the 70s and 80s and all that. Uh, and it was really Jeanette Kahn, uh, despite the fact that Jim Shooter wants to claim credit for this. Uh, Jeanette Kahn was really the one that kind of initiated equity sharing in the characters. They don't own the characters. Jerry doesn't own Killer Croc. 
but if Killer Croc is used in a video game, he gets a check. And I didn't know that Paul Levitz was basically doing that for all the people. I'd remembered hearing a rumor back when Batman Begins came out that Paul had Denny O'Neill go through the script to figure out who get paid, who who would get paid. But it, it didn't really occur to it occur to me that he was doing that like as a matter of course, which actually makes Paul Levitz look like a really nice guy. Mm. So uh, it's just, you know, they signed a contract and now it seemed, and, and as Jerry pointed out in that Fire and Water podcast, you know, it wasn't exactly what he was told, but it seemed like he was being told, oh, you know, all those contracts, well, it doesn't really work that way anymore. Uh, and I'm kind of wondering if they did the same thing with the trade paperback deals. Uh, because for the longest time, DC didn't put out trade paperbacks of material published in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It's because they would have to pay the creators involved such an exorbitant royalty that they wouldn't make any money off the book. Uh, so I'm wondering what's changed about that, but that's that's getting a little far afield. But no, I, I, w- I really appreciated, one, that he was so fair about it, Jerry was, in talking about it. There was no, there's a bad guy and a good guy. Yeah, uh, that's that's part of what I really appreciated. That just that aspect of it, you know. In, in even in his post, it was just like this is the situation as it's been presented to me, and this is why it's untenable. Uh, and I I gotta say, you know, I'm 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 not really happy with DC Comics right now. But it was nice to hear that Dan DiDio and Jeff Johns kind of reached out to him and didn't like smack him back. You know, they wanted to talk to him about it. Now whether that's because he's Jerry Conway and not. <laughs> Checking out books to cover tonight. It was tough because he's written so much. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I went on the Jerry Conway bibliography and it, it, it wasn't easy, but, uh, you know, we both narrowed in on books actually from the same era, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest thing that I really, really respected in the conversation with uh, Shag and, and Rob was that Jerry basically said, I will never sue them for these characters mm-hmm. and they don't owe me a legal obligation beyond what they've done already but when you look at it from a moral perspective maybe they do you know something to that effect i'm paraphrasing him obviously yeah it's uh, basically you know he knew what he was doing when he signed the contract exactly so to go back and, and try to undo that would not be right but they do owe him something and things get very, very complex when you start thinking about characters. And, and I know we've had this example before as well. Dick Grayson. Mm-hmm. Who gets, like, credit for, you know, creating him? You know, is it, is it the initial creation? Is it when he became Nightwing? You know, like, the characters change so much over the years. You know, can you give George Perez and Wolf Wolfman, say, oh, Nightwing is their character? Meanwhile, they were taking an already existing character and just changing him. On the other hand, you know, when he was created, it wasn't with that in mind either. So it does get complex over time. And and just another thing I note is that while comics... <laughs> is that you? Yeah, that was me. Sorry. Okay, no problem. <laughs> while, while comics are extremely popular in pop culture and, and widespread media right now, if you look at it, there's very, very little that's coming from independent. Almost everything is from Marvel and DC. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, you have your exceptions. You have The Walking Dead and, and some other things. Uh, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles has been popular for years and years, and that was independent. 
but there really isn't a heck of a lot that came out from the independent world that has caught on to the extent that they're huge money makers. And if you take that as a premise, then you got to think, well, maybe, you know, Marvel's ability to publicize this work and DC's ability to publicize the work is what has caused the, you know, it to come into the public eye and be able to make all this money. So if you created it independently and you had, you know, you had kept the rights and you hadn't sold it to those companies, maybe it never would have caught on anyway. Yeah, I uh, there was a book that came out in 1993 called Comic Book Rebels, which was a collection of interviews that these two editors and they were, I think it was, I think it was Stephen Bissett and uh, what's his name from Swamp Thing, but I'd have to go back and look at that. But it was basically, you know, in 1992, 93, when Image hits, um, when when Image hit and all that, creators' rights was like this huge thing. You know, suddenly owning the characters was important uh, because the Image guys struck out on their own, and you know they they you know Rob Liefeld owned Young Blood, you know Eric Larson owned Savage Dragon, so there was this like kind of feeling, and, and even the the introduction to this, it's funny look reading the book now because it's twenty years later, and it's just like wow, why was you know you guys were taking this way more seriously than maybe you should have, uh, and let's be fair, the Image guys went off on their own to make more money. It, it, it wasn't artistic. I mean, maybe it was a little bit, but it was also about, you know, that check. Mm-hmm. So, but um, the introduction to this thing was we're fighting a war. So you have all of these people. You had Todd McFarlane and Frank Miller and, and Colleen Duran and all these, you know, creators who worked for for the big two and for independent companies. And then they interviewed Will Eisner. And I really get the feeling that they wanted to cut a particular part of his interview out because in his in, in his in his interview he's like Superman may not have been anything without DC, mm. and it was just like and it was just like really funny that the old guy comes in you know nothing against Will Eisner I'm not trying to say you know he's old as a pejorative but you know like the guy that they probably thought was going to be their champion from the Golden Age comes in and goes eh you know it might not have been a thing you know it's just. It's it's so easy to sit back, you know, 77 years later and say, you know, well, it was obvious that Superman was going to be a big thing when it really wasn't. Yeah. I mean, they didn't they didn't put him on the cover of Action Comics again to like issue six or seven. So It, it is very hard to try to put it in perspective and to understand what it must have been like when that book hit the stands. Yeah. And 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 what the popular thought was and uh, you know what I, i'd be interested in knowing and it's something i've never even thought about before is what the print run was on action comics number one because you talk to people i mean you, now you're talking to people who are in their 80s but when you if you do or at least back when i you know if, if it was 25 30 years ago and i was talking to people in their 50s and 60s at that point to a man almost any any man not the women but almost any man you spoke to would say oh yeah i owned that book when it came out and you know my mother threw it out or something uh so if unless they're they're mistaken which is quite possible for several of them although i don't think really all that many were intentionally lying uh it must have had a big print run cuz like everybody said they had it yeah i mean it it was one of those things um I think the initial print one was like 200,000 copies. Uh, and then they went back to press with it again when it started, because uh, it promptly sold out. Uh, so it, it had a it had a pretty staggering uh, 
print run, you know, you, you know, and you compare that today when 70,000 is a good seller, you know, and this, this was on a, um, this was when everything was through the newsstand and everything was returnable. But and, it was also something that was considered totally to be totally disposable at that time. Nobody was anticipated uh, to to be preserving it and keeping it mm-hmm. you know, as a collectible of any sort. I mean, kids traded comics. Kids rolled it up and put it in their back pocket and walked down the street with it. I mean, it was you know, it's just it's it's horrifying to think about today. But you know, it's kind of weird that with the digital medium, we're kind of getting back to that a little bit, where it's a little more disposable and a little more about, you know, reading it and not, you know, preserving it. I'll never get rid of my Superman collection, and I'll add to it. But, man, I got to tell you, ever since I got this tablet, it's hard to, re- you know, I'm my purchasing decisions are, it's 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 crazy how I look at something, I'm like, yeah, I, I can read that on Marvel Unlimited, and I really don't feel like spending you know the money to get it and then to store it and you know because and never see it again <laughs> and never see it again well and and you know this i'm not saying this to be big-headed but i think people who have large comic book collections that there's this sort of there's a sort of point where you're like this is madness almost <laughs> you know some people like that but yeah, I, I I gotta agree with you though. You do come to a point where you you start saying you start asking yourself how much is enough. Yeah, but I, we we are you know we, we are tangenting off and uh, yeah and and we could continue to tangent I'm sure for a long time and we we'd get to some strange world. Uh, but just to kind of go back to creators' rights and all, I am very happy from a creator perspective. Just from guys who I who I've met who I consider to be gentlemen and who, who uh, I'm always amazed by the thought of, you know, in front of us, they're royalty, and then they walk out on the street to buy a slice of pizza, and they're just, you know, whoever, yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, but but guys who I've talked to have been who've been so uh, accommodating and so pleasant to deal with, and, and you know that they're in the business for the most part because of a love of the business, because I don't think there's too many guys who really got into this with the, in, with the thought process that they were going to truly get rich. Uh, and and to see them being rewarded by the companies in in some small way, I mean, I'm sure it's not huge, huge bucks, but just to see them taken care of and maybe help them in their retirements and all, uh, it it does feel good, and I, and I like seeing that, and and I like that it can be done in an amicable way, and it's not more litigation. Uh, who was who was the creator from Ghost Rider? Who was it? Gary Friedrich. Yeah, Gary Friedrich. And and basically, you know, he he sued them, and Marvel smacked him down in a big time way. And and it's it's nice to see things being worked out without that happening. Yeah, and, and you know the Steve Gerber lawsuit with Howard the Duck, which ultimately he won, but it was a uh, it was pretty contentious from what I understand. Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely, he he was very very bitter. Uh, and even Kirby was bitter. I mean, there was this uh, there was that kind of movement in fandom in the eighties, you know, to get Marvel to turn you know return his artwork basically. Uh, and you know, it, it, from reading it, since I really wasn't around at that point, uh, maybe you could speak to this better than me, you know, in reading interviews with him, Kirby was kind of bitter about the whole thing that he wasn't seeing what he saw was due to him. Yeah. I, I mean, that's my understanding of it as it was going on, that that was the way it was. In fact, he and Steve Gerber actually teamed up, uh, and did a destroyer duck yes. <laughs> to, uh, to help fund 
the legal proceedings. Uh, but what I could say is, and I recently posted on Facebook a, a scan of uh, the splash page of Captain America 194, uh, where Jack Kirby autographed it for me. Uh, and my experience with Jack Kirby is as bitter as he may have been towards Marvel and how he was treated there, uh, I don't think that ever bled over to the fans. I think he always appreciated the uh, the love that the fans gave him. And, and in fairness, as much as I love Stan Lee, he did steal a lot of the spotlight that should have been Jack's. And some of that was his own fault, and some of it was thrust upon him. It's 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 really kind of a, it's kind of an interesting thing when you look at those two personalities because it always seemed like Stan wanted to be in the spotlight. Like that's yeah. that's that's kind of where he wanted to be, and he he took full advantage of it. And more power to him because you know a lot of people want to badmouth Stan Lee, and and you can you can second guess decisions and all that, but. He is integral to the Marvel Universe, so the fact that he was able to parlay that into, you know, speaking at colleges and doing stuff like that and going out to Hollywood, you know, more power to him, but it it would have been nice to have a little bit more of the approach. I mean, if I'm remembering this correctly, and this is from an interview back in, like, 1990 in comic scene, when the Captain America pilots were about to come on television... Jack and Joe Simon had to like raise a fuss because some of the press for the movie was saying that the character was created by Stan Lee. So that was probably just people in the studios assuming that Stan Lee created the character, but mm. still. So, I mean, the way I saw it was, and I, I think you, you kind of hit it on the head, is that Stan liked being in the limelight and, and Jack really was more of a laid back guy who wasn't going to seek the adulation. Uh, I think that things were too focused on Stan, and he got you know all the credit while Jack and Steve Ditko were kind of left uh, behind a little bit. But eventually now I think it's turned too far the other way. And there mm-hmm. are people who want to give Jack Kirby 100% of the credit and say, yeah, Stan was just along for the ride. And, and I don't think that's fair at all. I, I really can't differentiate an exact percentage. So as far as I'm concerned, in my mind, I give them 50-50 credit. They are equal... Uh, on on creating basically this Marvel universe that we have right now. Yeah, and especially when you look at when you look at their work together on the Fantastic, and how that kind of synthesized both of their strengths, and then you look at their work by themselves, it really you you really can't say one was more important to the other to the Fantastic Four because Jack unfiltered, awesome. I mean, we've talked about this before, like fantastic imaginative but sometimes kind of hard to read not not focused <laughs> yeah that's the way i look at it and and stan could get very navel gazing with his dialogue <laughs> so it's just you know but but going to like you know the creator's rights you know the the the, the people of conway's generation uh, like you said i don't think they came into this to get rich i think they came in for the love of the game uh i i, I think some of the image guys got that's a that that was a product of that time period, but the fact that you know from Jerry Conway starting as an 18 year old writing for DC and then moving to Marvel and uh, you know Marv Wolfman doing the same to see those guys kind of watch the industry change from within where suddenly uh, you know it was almost like you they wanted to hop on a on a on a a book that wasn't doing well to make it hot. 
and therefore that raises their esteem and you know then they make a little bit more money and and i think it was it was really nice that the publishers in the 70s and the 80s really started thinking of their talent as more than just people that were on the assembly line you know ford i'm sure appreciates the people that work at their plants but the guy that puts the door on really isn't thought of any more than the guy that you know puts the trunk on you know and that's that's simplifying it but i think i i hope i'm making the point i think you Uh, you know suddenly they were talent to be cultivated and to see that disrespected uh and to see agreements disrespected i think is what caught a lot of people and, and and really got me angry because you know after after being in like the midst of that Siegel case and, and following it for you know the, the the home the Superman homepage, you know I got kind of weary by the end of it. And I didn't want to talk about anybody creating anything. And she's like, you know, Bill Finger got screwed. But at this point, I'm like, I don't even want to talk about it. But this, I don't know why this got me like my hackles up. Like, no, no, you guys made an agreement with this man, and just because the company changes doesn't necessarily mean that the company, you know. And I know that that happens, but still, it just seems like there's a moral imperative here to keep up your agreements with the people that have created characters that are continuing to make you billions of dollars. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, and, and, you know, you, you also see effects of the, uh, you know, the creator's rights issues come up with the fact that there, there has been such a dearth of new sustainable characters in the Marvel and DC universes in the last, I don't know, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's because the, the creators have come to the conclusion of, well, why would I give them my characters, you know, and, and then I, I'm, you know, I'm out in the cold if they make a lot of money. So, so one thing about, you know, them coming to some sort of amicable, con, you know, solution to all of this is maybe we'll see a new creative lifeblood in these companies, which would be really nice. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, so that that's one aspect of it that, I, that I'm hopeful for. Another thing, just kind of a, a thought process here, is that as an outsider looking in, I find myself rooting for the companies sometimes out of selfish reasons. And that's probably not the right way to look at it. It's certainly not fair to these creators to look at it that way. But it's like, I would hate to see the Marvel Universe broken up because all of a sudden the rights start going different ways you know the Kirby estate got the rights to all these characters and then Marvel doesn't have the right to publish them anymore or or produce these films you know from a fan point of view that would suck so so you know for selfish reasons I I wouldn't like that and that again that's not necessarily fair to the creators I know I I was talking to Chris Claremont uh I don't know if it was last year or the year before at New York Comic-Con and you know, he, he would kind of just shrug his shoulders and say, you know, what are you going to do? But, you, you know, you could tell he was very disheartened by the fact that they're making these X-Men movies. Uh, and, and he really, you know, wasn't being given credit for, for very much. At the time, uh, the Wolverine had just come out. Uh, and, and there's a lot of stuff in that that's from the Wolverine miniseries that he had done with Frank Miller. Uh, and and you know he 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 wasn't even given a creative credit on it at all you know nevertheless money so well, you know you could see where that would be bothersome when when a movie like that comes out and it's making you know untold millions of dollars. Well, I'll take it one step further. I think it's kind of despicable that 
Dave Cockrum suffered from as many health maladies as he did while Marvel is making millions and billions of dollars, not only on the X films of 2000 and 2002. He died in 2006, so I, I guess he... he I was going to make a joke about him seeing X3, but that seems like an incredibly poor taste, so I'm just going to ignore that one uh, and apologize to anybody that I offended with it. But, you know, that X-Men cartoon on Fox was huge, and the toys that were at the result of that, and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the... You know, and here's a guy that's, you know, suffering from several health maladies and, you know, really isn't getting the help that he needs. I think that's I think that's despicable in a certain way. So it's just like, you know, I'm kind of like you. You know, there's a part of me that doesn't want to see the characters broken up because you know, I you know I, I love the universe kind of the way it is, and Marvel's in the midst of changing its universe right now. And but you know, it's kind of funny when you think about it. Is that the movies are kind of priming us for that because you know Marvel Studios can't use the X Men or the Fantastic Four, so now they're having to now their comics are starting to kind of reflect that, and maybe we're kind of seeing the start of the the breakup if that ever happened. I don't know if that makes any sense, but you know, it makes sense. I just I do find myself wishing that that will not happen. Yeah, um, I mean, and and again, know, that's for selfish reasons, and I don't want to see the creators hurt by those selfish reasons. I'm hoping, you know, I'm really hoping that there are amicable solutions to all of this, and that everyone ends up happy. And there certainly seems to be enough money to go around. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and and you know, Rob Kelly kind of pointed it out. You know, sometimes comic fans don't want to know how the sausage is made. Uh, but I, I think we kind of owe it. If you're if you're gonna say you care about the creators, you then have to kind of think about what is going on with them and the fact that you know Alan Brennert, you know the, that whole thing popped up over Gotham. And if anybody's not familiar with that, Alan Brennert wrote one of the uh, some of the best Batman stories ever. Uh, one of which was Detective Comics number five hundred, the story to kill a legend. And in that story, he created Barbara Keene, who was Jim Gordon's fiance in this alternate reality. And then Gotham starts using a character by that name. And he, he puts in a request for it. And basically they would have paid him, I think they worked it out, he worked it out, that it would have been $25 per episode. And they're like, no, we're not doing it. <laughs> it's just like, really, you can't afford a couple hundred bucks over the course of a season? I mean, uh, God, what would it have worked out to? I, w I wonder, you know, if their fear is something on the lines of, you know, setting bad precedent as far mm -hmm. as they're concerned. Or very often, I know uh, that when you talk about residuals and everything now, the big thing is the money that's made on the Netflix Con, you know that that model, whether it's through Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever, and you know the home, just the home video market in general, because that's an, an ever evolving thing. So yeah. I wonder if their fear is, you know, yeah, okay, we give them twenty five dollars an episode, but then for every DVD we sell or every time it's on Netflix, we have to give him money now and whatever that adds up to. I I don't know, you know, the ins and outs of it, but I yeah, do think it, that, that the home home video market is is a big big factor in uh, a lot of these creative strikes we've had in movies and television and all yeah and, and but and one of the things that i was kind of particularly taken with in the in the interview that shag and rob did with with jerry was you know he didn't quite side with the bean counters 
but he seemed to understand their position in all this because if you're if you're an accountant for a large company like this and you make a mistake that costs the company millions of dollars you're not going to be working for that company much longer after that unless you've got some incriminating photos or something like that so I mean, so to them, it's almost, and you can kind of understand this from a business sense, it's almost better to not pay anybody so that you don't make a mistake. But unfortunately, that means you're kind of screwing somebody over. And it seemed like Jerry, when he when he received this email that got him to post on his Tumblr page, that this that whoever he talked to just, one, didn't have any idea what they were talking about, and two, was just kind of rude about the whole thing. Yeah, that's the way it sounded to me as well. And, you know, when, when you look at somebody like Jerry Conway, and, and let's forget the night Gwen Stacy, which Marvel readers voted last year to be the number one story Marvel ever published. Now, the fact that number two was Civil War kind of diminishes <laughs> its place on there, but, you know, I'm not going to get into that. But we're talking about a man who created Jason Todd. He created Killer Croc. He had extended runs on Spider-Man, he created Firestorm, or co-created Firestorm, uh, and he created the Punisher. He doesn't get anything from the Punisher. The man has never seen any of the Punisher movies because they refuse to give him any kind of residuals from creating this character. Now, you could argue that all three of the Punisher films didn't do too well. I like all three of them, personally. I even like the Dolph Lundgren one. It's not a really good Punisher movie, but it's not a bad late 80s action film, you know, all things being equal. But, you know, you have all these movies that are making somebody money. I mean, the Thomas Jane one, I think, did the best out of all three. Uh, and, and you know, you yeah, he's on the DVD, but in a cup of coffee, you know, that, that and two bucks will get you a cup of coffee, you know? It's just like he's on a DVD extra. You know, that, that doesn't that doesn't get him anything, you know, in, in terms of compensation for this movie executives are getting paid for, that licensors are, you know, giving money for, that actors are getting paid for. You know, like all this money is changing hands. And the guy that co-created the character is just like, you know, yeah, he's not poor. But at the same time, that that seems inc- I know a lot of people don't like this term. It seems incredibly unfair. And, and and whether he's poor or not is irrelevant, really. Yeah. You know, the fact that he's made money from other avenues shouldn't have any impact on his, you know, legal and or moral right to get some, some you know, some return from his own uh, imagination. Now, I know Marvel isn't adverse to get on an interview uh, revealed that when the first Iron Man movie came out, he pointed out to Joe Quesada that he created Obadiah Stane. And is there anything in there? And he got a check for it. Apparently it wasn't like a huge check, but, you know, and, and to be fair, Joe Quesada's place in the industry kind of like, you know, the, Denny O'Neill has something to do with that, considering, you know, how big sort of Azrael and the, you know, the Azrael version of Batman was. And Joe Quesada drew that first miniseries. So... You know, maybe that had something to do with it, but it's not like it's not like these people don't want to pony up the cash when they're asked. It's just they're they're not. It seems like with Marvel, there's less of a leg to stand on contracts that they had with DC, and it was a different time period. I mean, when he uh, the Punisher came out in late 1973, you know, creators' rights were a pipe dream. I mean, 
to be to be fair, some of the people working in comics in 1973 were only there because a group of artists wanted health care. And DC kind of forced them out and brought in these, you know, I wouldn't call them scabs uh, because it wasn't like that. I mean, Denny O'Neill wasn't even aware that it happened until years after the fact. So, you know, so it, to be fair, when The Punisher was created, it, it, it wasn't like a thing. But, you know, at some point, if something's popular maybe you should give the guy who helped create it, you know, Jerry Conway and Ross Andrew, maybe they should have some kind of compensation for it. And and I, I think, you know, you, you're being uh, kind when you say, well, it's not that they don't want to pay them. It, let's be fair. They don't want to pay them. <laughs> you know, they, <laughs> they, no, no, no big corporation is saying, hey, who, who can we give more money to? Uh, that's not just, just not the way Very of the true. world. Uh, I think, you know, they, they're their willingness to pay is uh, based on on two things. One is fear that there would be a uh, eventually a court ruling that would require them to pay more than they're willing to do now, mm-hmm. and two, fear of a public backlash eventually against them for being so cold and corporate. So I, right. I, you know, I think that it, it's it's part public relations and part legal fear uh, that makes them. Being willing to pony up uh, where, where they where they are, uh, I, I'm not willing to give. You you know I am by nature a conservative person, uh, in in my views on things. Uh, but even with that, I'm not willing to give corporate America the benefit of the doubt that they're doing anything out of the goodness of their hearts. Well, no, they're. they're I think they're, they'd they're... stab you in the eye if it would get them an extra dollar at the end of the day. You know, any industry is there to make, you know, they're, you know, whether it be, you know, retail, insurance, the auto industry, whatever, they're there to make money. And God bless them for doing it. I'm not begrudging anybody, you know, the, the you know, the ability to go and do that because I think it's, uh, you know, when, when capitalism works, it works. You know, it's not, it's, I, I, I happen to believe in, in it as a system. But the thing is, is that, I think comic companies are probably a little more, I don't want to say scared, but social media blew this thing up with Jerry Conway. I mean, I posted about it, but so did, uh, you know, a million other people. And it was on Twitter. It was on Facebook. And to be fair, some of the people posting about it had no idea the particulars of what was going on. And to be fair, some people were probably just riding the bandwagon of being pissed off about something because the Internet is the place to be pissed off about something. But well, that pisses what, me off. <laughs> but let's go back to Jerry Siegel. The only reason Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster got anything from Warner Brothers is because Jerry Siegel wrote a letter to every newspaper in the country when the Superman movie was announced. Neil Adams got involved and publicly shamed them. Okay, and that's in the seventies when you know. Things didn't, you know, media and and the news and all that didn't move as fast as it does today. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, to 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 make fun of it, but you know, it's just it's just how things were. Something blows up on Twitter, and suddenly millions of people are talking about it. So it's just it's it, it's such a different time that I think, as much as I'd like to think that Dan DiDio and Jeff Johns were doing were reaching out to Jerry out of the goodness of their heart. I think there was some spin control going on here too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally it, agree. 
And 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 but, just yeah. while since you brought it up, I I do want to tip my hat to Neil Adams, and uh, we've talked about Neil Adams. We both, you and I, have both had separate opportunities to engage in conversations with him. And mm-hmm. while Neil Adams' favorite subject is Neil Adams, uh, <laughs> he he is an incredibly engaging guy, uh, and and obviously has uh, you know good motivation in when he's dealing with other people you could you know you just you, you hear that that you know he's standing up for these other people's rights and and you know meanwhile at the time at that time with Siegel and Schuster I mean Neil Adams was probably the most popular artist out there mm-hmm. uh, so he he could write his own ticket for whatever he wanted he didn't need to to back these guys up and he did so, you know, hats off to him for, for being so willing to help out others when, you know, his plate was clearly full anyway. Yeah, and and, and it's kind of interesting because he was basically, he only wanted to fight for people that wanted to fight for themselves. Uh, Neil did an interview with Kevin Smith where he talked about Bill Finger. He mm-hmm. said, Bill Finger never asked for help. So why am I going to help a guy that's not going to help himself? So it, it, it's interesting to see the pragmatic side of it, you know. You know, he he went to bat for Siegel and Schuster and, and got the artistic community together in a way that somebody who was a lesser artist wouldn't have been able to. So and got them on the Tomorrow Show. And by the way, that episode of the Tomorrow Show, that tape is gone. It is gone. It's like one of the only episodes of the Tomorrow Show that people can't find a copy of. Hmm. That's kind of suspicious. But I wonder hmm, if Warner Brothers, huh? <laughs> Yeah, and just just again changing direction on you suddenly. But you you mentioned earlier about uh, Dave Cockrum and how sad uh, that was as a story, and the reverse of that. And this may be done purely for public relations purposes, but whatever the motivation was, at least it's it's something that brings a smile to your face. Uh, is the way when Guardians came out, Marvel made it, went out of their way to to try and take care of Bill Mantlo. Yeah. And and uh, I know uh, I reached out to Michael Mantlo, his brother, and uh, we had a, a little interaction back and forth. And I, I, I talked to him about how, you know, I, I respected so much the way he takes care of his brother and the way he's fought for him and all. And, and it, it really did warm my heart some. And it, it's just, just a, you know, a, a, a horrible, tragic story that at least has a silver lining to it. Yeah, and, and it was... It was good that not only you know they they not only showed him the movie uh, because you know with his condition it's kind of hard for him to get to the theater but there was there was some compensation there as well from what I understand. Oh yeah, that's that's more what I'm talking about than the you know than having a screening for him, yeah. and rightly so because Rocket Raccoon was like the runaway to me was the runaway star of that movie. I mean, and 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 really, who thought that would work? But <laughs> but they didn't have that character. Without Bill Mantlo and Mike Mignola creating him for an issue of The Incredible Hulk back in the early '80s, thank God I held on to that issue. Yeah, I have that. Can't one find too. it now, cheap. <laughs> it's still kind of expensive, but no, you know, it's easy to paint because we're we're fans of comic book. I think fandom, and I've talked about this a thousand times. I think it's really easy for fandom to want there to be good guys and bad guys. Uh, and, and and to quote a song, there ain't no good guys, there ain't no bad guys, there's only you and me and we just disagree. Uh, it's not quite that simple, but I just wanted to quote that song because it popped <laughs> into my head and I needed to. Well, you know what, if anybody who's old enough to know that uh, probably popped into their head because it popped into mine too. So. 
<laughs> I was I was actually very happy that you that you went through the lyrics there. <laughs> but you know, I don't think that DC Entertainment because there's no DC Comics anymore. Uh, I don't think that DC Entertainment or Marvel Entertainment are evil in and of themselves. You know, they're not. You know, they're not. You know, the the owners of these companies aren't Mr. Burns. You know, you know, wanting to hoard away and 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 cheat and steal and all that. But at the same time, like like we've been saying, if somebody makes you billions of dollars, give them something. But like you said, then they run the risk of everybody coming with their hand out. So it, it, it's it's such a complicated issue that you can't break it down to simple good versus evil here. I mean, the the, the thing with Jerry that, that I like so much is how even-handed he has been throughout the entire process. I mean, you know, from his initial... His initial post did not read like Jerry Siegel's letter to the newspapers where he was calling for a, a curse on Warner Brothers. I mean, he was just like, this is a situation. This is why I don't this is why it is it is unfair and a, a little immoral. And even afterwards, you know, he didn't back down completely from his position. He was a little more polite about it uh, because it was explained to him further. But still, you know, it. it I'm the type of guy that, and I think a lot of people are like this, you know, if you make a deal with somebody, you honor that deal, you know, and if you inherit a business and that business has a, an agreement with somebody, I mean, maybe legally you're not required to carry on with that, but I think you kind of have a moral imperative to do so. I think in, in really this different. instance, I certainly think so. I mean, there may be exceptions to it that are, that are escaping me right now. But in this instance, I think when there's – we're talking so much money now. You know, the comics industry was a fairly small industry at one time. I don't think there was a lot of money going around. Uh, you know, when, when they were charging 25 cents a book, I don't think, you know, anybody was becoming millionaires off of them. Uh, but and, – and, and the comics industry still with the number of books they're selling, it's not – I don't think it's a huge moneymaker. In fact, it may be a lost leader for these companies. But these movies that they're making and these TV shows they're making, I mean, there's, we're talking billions of dollars. So to just turn a blind eye to the people who created these characters, uh, like you said, I think there's a moral imperative not to do that. And I think if nothing else, it's worth it. It's worth the company's while just from a public relations standpoint to show we take care of our people. Yeah, because you, you don't want your fan base to turn on you because of a bad decision you've made. I mean, you know, th there was a huge backlash after the Avengers uh, Age of Ultron came out that I really don't want to get into, but there was a backlash. It was stupid, but it was there. And I think, to a certain extent, from a financial standpoint, these companies have kind of an um, obligation to their shareholders to keep the, 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 the people that might cause a problem quiet and i'm not talking in a shakedown type of deal but you know if your company has shareholders and you you owe a certain obligation to them uh from a financial standpoint then you better keep the wheels greased otherwise you know your own shareholders may start questioning you and then that that's never good for anybody god i mean it's just I could go on from personal experience of seeing how that happens, but I don't want to lose my job. So, <laughs> yeah, no, none of us want that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, I, I think this is another topic where we could we could probably talk for another two hours on this, yeah, and, and pontificate and and uh, 
I just I, I think I'm just to, to, to sum it up as best as I can for me, uh, I, I would say it sounds to me um, and I'm hopeful that what you know that appearances aren't deceiving, but it sounds like they're heading in the right direction and mm-hmm. they may be able to come up with ways uh, that are amicable where you know where, where they say, hey, you know what everybody makes a good living and we're all going to be happy when it's done. And if that's the case, I am extremely happy that that is the case and I just hope that we're not being fed a bill of goods to shut yeah. us all up. I mean, we're in a transitionary period, not only in terms of, you know, the, the, the properties getting out of there in, in, in billion dollar films and, and Netflix television series and, you know, and, and, and television shows. I mean, heck, in 2016, DC is going to have like six television series on te- on TV with characters. Did you ever think Rip Hunter, of all people, of all characters, to dig out of DC Comics? <laughs> Rip freaking Hunter. I know Jeff John's love, but before 52, no one cared about Rip Hunter. He was part of the linear men and was killed off during zero hour. So, you know, they're my, with the explosion. And it's really funny because I think a, a lot of us, and I, and I think it's the older ones of us, that remember 1997 and where everything went south with comic book properties. And between the Steel movie and the Spawn movie and Batman and Robin, I mean, Man of Men in Black did well, but come on, everything else flopped that year. The fact that they made an X-Men film in 2000 was kind of a minor miracle, and that doesn't even factor in Blade. But we're not in that era anymore. There doesn't seem to be a top for this. It just seems to be getting bigger. And I think by getting to things like Netflix, you know... You know, Marvel especially has this incredible opportunity to, you know, to bring, you know, these creations out there. But in that in those growing pains, they got to figure how to make sure that the people that they have agreements with or that created these characters. I mean, let's even look at digital comics. I mean, when digital comics is almost like when DVD TV series started coming out on DVD. And suddenly you had the greatest American hero and half the music had to be changed out in the Mm -hmm. pilots because they didn't have, you know, they had rights to use it on the television show and maybe in the reruns. But there was no foresee. In 1981, no one was thinking about how TV shows would come to home video. I mean, it just wasn't because it was so expensive to even own a VCR, much less own a. Remember when movies were $90? I do, I do, and it just boggles my mind when I think about. It. I remember, you know, Star Trek Two coming out and being thirty four ninety nine, and that being revolutionary that it was so cheap. <laughs> yeah, when movies when movies hit that VHS tapes hit that twenty dollar mark, that's when it really started booming. I think, but still, you know, no one no one foresaw in the, in the in the 80s that one day these books would be available digitally through a subscription service and how do the creators that had some kind of agreement back then, do they, do they just not get paid for it because it wasn't factored in? And I mean, think of, think of reprints rights as in the seventies, as opposed to the, you know, for creators in the seventies who had agreements compared to those in the forties and fifties and how much DC in the sixties and seventies just mined the crap out of their golden age material was cheap to do because they didn't have to pay any extra for it yeah we're not and it's it's kind of exciting 
it's kind of scary and it's just it's just weird overall to see this happen. I will climb off my soapbox now. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think we both kind of given our perspectives on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think in our own way, you know, we, we are both procreator. But, uh, you know, we, 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 we want to see, the, like I said, most of these guys that I've met, uh, I, I, I have great respect for them. And I've enjoyed having the chance to, uh, to, to say hello, shake their hands, tell them how much I've appreciated their work and, and, and have them, you know, share with me some thoughts about the work that they did. Uh, so to see them taken care of and, and treated well is, is really something that I, uh, I'm very happy about. and I really want that to continue. Uh, and then just, you know, as, as a as, just as a side mention, just because uh, it, even though it's totally off topic, but thinking about uh, creators that I've met and, and them being gentlemen, uh, I just want to throw in how saddened I am uh, at the not too long ago passing of Herb Trimpey. Uh, met had a chance to meet him at New York Comic Con and, you know, bought a, a Hulk sketch from him and, and took a picture with him and showed him the picture that he did at my request back in like 1974 and, and mailed to me. Uh, just just having had that opportunity, I, I, I was impressed with what a gentleman he was. And, and I'm very, very saddened by his recent passing and just figure it's worth a mention because it, it hadn't come up on the show to this point. Yeah, I uh, I didn't have a whole lot of perspective on him because... It was a little before my time, but, you know, to see the outpouring of appreciation for him was really, it really did my heart good because it seemed like for a lot of people that was their Hulk. Yeah, he was, he was my Hulk guy. So, you know, I, I think, uh, to a certain extent, and I'm not saying I want it to happen anytime soon, I think I'll feel something very similar when, when it, it you know, passes away because, you know, he was my Hulk artist. You know, he was. Oh, the, you, you went silent on me for a second. Did you say Sal Buscema? I said Sal Buscema, yes. That's okay. That's that's what I kind of figured. And and I'll, I'll actually be very saddened by that as well. Uh, and I don't want that to happen anytime. No, but, no, but, no. But no, I, no. I, I, I've always felt that Sal is a truly underappreciated talent. Oh, God, yes. And, and I, I think, you know, we've covered some books. Most recently, didn't we do the Hulk issue that you covered with 3D mm-hmm. Man was a Sal Buscema, was it not? Yes, it was. And and we, we I think we went on that night a little bit about how, how underappreciated he is, and I don't want to revisit that all the way. But there's, there's guys like him that, uh, you know, they've made a living for many, many years doing this, but probably never did get rich and maybe deserved a better fate from the industry. Yeah, especially what a workhorse that man was. I mean, it you look at the characters he's touched. I mean, I, I recently went through some of the early issues of the Engelhart run on Captain America. I had no idea Sal Buscema did the artwork for those. And it was, it was, God, it's so good. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know his brother kind of gets more praise artistically, but, you know, I, I think underrated is probably the, the, that's the, that was the best word to use in regards to his work. I mean, it's just, I, I really wish, I really wish it, he it was more popular uh, than it than it was. Me too, and 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 I would love to see a, a real while he is still with us. I'd love to see a, a you know real outpouring of of uh, fan appreciation towards him. Now there is a Facebook group, but there's a Facebook group for everything. So, <laughs> but it's nice <laughs> that, that it's there. <laughs> that that is true. Uh, 
Yeah, he, he was interviewed once. I, I don't know if you were involved in the show at the time, but he was interviewed on Spider-Man Crawl Space. That was a little before I came on, but I remember that interview very and, well. And he also, I, I've never had the pleasure of meeting him, but uh, in in that particular interview, he definitely came off, uh, another one who came off as a real gentleman mm-hmm. and, and uh, somebody who, who you know, I, I appreciate very much. And, and the last guy along those lines, although I can't say he's underappreciated because there is such an outpouring of love for him, uh, but having heard an interview with him and, and just learning to love his work over the years is Gene Colan. Yeah, uh, he gave a really good interview on the Daredevil DVD uh, as a, as a, as a, one of the featurettes they had, and it was uh, he was came off as just a guy that loved to do the work, you know, and and that's kind of what you want to. You want these guys to make, you know, and gals, so I don't want to be sexist, but, uh, you know, you want them to be well compensated, but there, there's there's also something about hearing how much they love to do the work, and you have to think that for some of these creators, you know, this is their job. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's probably artistically fulfilling, but, you know, Jack Kirby didn't draw as many pages as he did because, you know, for the love of the game, he drew more pages so he would get more, you know, more money coming in to take care of his family. So, yeah, uh, well, but yeah hear- and, and that is something uh, I think it was Jimmy Palmiotti who who I heard interviewed and he was talking about how at a, a con, uh, you know, with Amanda Connor, his wife, and uh, somebody came up and, and asked about, you know, a uh, commission and she quoted a price to him and then they started to haggle. And Jimmy, basically, his, his perspective was, you know, he'd rather you just said, you know, I'm sorry, that's out of my price range, shake my hand and walk away. Yeah. Then then to start, you know, nickel and diming because this is what I do for a living. This is how I make, you know, this is how I keep my home. Uh, so if you don't want to pay it, that's fine, you know, but I'm going to find somebody else who does because I need to pay my bills. Yeah, no, yeah. God, it's... Sorry, some of the the behavior I've seen, especially at Dragon Con, towards some of the creators is it it, it kind of makes me mad at my own people. It it, it really does. I mean, I, I don't want these people to you know the creators to to run all over. You know, have some have some respect for somebody that's taken time out of their out of their daily work schedule. I mean, you 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 say Jimmy Palmiotti, he recently posted something on Facebook about how you know t- going to conventions costs most creators money. Because that's time away from the table. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if they're taking the time, and yeah, they may be getting paid to be there, and yeah, they may be charging something for the sketches that you're doing and all that, but, you know, at the same time, you need to meet somebody that made the art that you like. So, uh, I don't want to get too much onto this, but it just makes me kind of mad. mad. Mike Smash. <laughs> and on that note, uh, we'll stick a, a promo in here for Somebody's Good Show. And uh, then we'll get back and, and why don't we do our books? Let's talk some comics. Because I think, I think we've pontificated long enough. Yeah, I think any more people will probably get bored. If they're not bored already. By me, not you, obviously. Well, either, either of us. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who. I don't care for anime. I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic Comic books. 
I've been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I've been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series, or issue, or character, or whatever to talk about, and then I... Well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com from there you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comics, or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com Alright, we're back. And, uh... In line with the show, we both picked Jerry Conway books, and as we both said, we've had so much to pick from, and yet kind of landed in the same general vicinity. So hopefully you'll enjoy the two books we picked. I get the first one because when we're both, we both have Marvels, and to differentiate, mine came out slightly earlier in time. Mine has a cover date of March of 1972. It's Amazing Adventures, issue number 11, which had a cover price of 20 cents. The cover on it is by Gil Kane and Bill Everett, and Shows the beast front and center, and it's the hairy beast, which up until this issue came out, did not exist. And he's leaping and basically uh, hitting a couple of security guards as some guy in a lab coat behind him, either uh, having an aneurysm or yelling at him. <laughs> uh, but typical Gil Kane dynamic cover, uh, just really good stuff. It, this is in the days where they had the, uh, the border around the uh, cover which is not necessarily one of my favorite things, but just the same, brings back some great memories. And just out of pure laziness, I took my synopsis from the Marvel database. Uh, I didn't actually write one, so you're welcome, everyone. The story is written by Jerry Conway, penciled by Tom Sutton, inked by Sid Shores, lettered by Sam Rosen, and edited by Stan Lee. And the title of the story is Lo, A Beast Is Born. Nighttime at the Brand Corporation, a gray-furred beast wanders about outside the genetic research lab, stalking one of the security guards on duty. When the guard breaks into the lab, the beast attacks him. However, they alert the attention of soldiers on location when the guard tries to shoot the beast. When the guard is gunned down by soldiers, a mortified beast returns to his lab to find that he is running late. Attempting to use a device to restore himself to human form, he realizes that the process that had turned him into the <clears throat> Excuse me. The process that has turned him into a hirsute beast is irreversible. As the beast rampages through his lab, we learn that he is really Hank McCoy, formerly of the X-Men, now more of a beast in appearance than name. The beast reflects back about the day he left the X-Men to accept a position of a genetic researcher for the brand corporation. Needing to be in the city by the next morning, beast packs his bags and bids his farewell to excuse me bids his fellow fellow x-men farewell 
Arriving at the brand corporate headquarters, Hank meets with his new boss, Mr. Grant, before being introduced to Linda Donaldson, his assistant, who shows him around and, and introduces him to Carl Maddox, whom Beast will be working with. Right off the bat, Linda takes a keen interest in Hank while Maddox expresses his dislike of Hank, feeling that he doesn't need a partner to work with. Sparks fly with Linda, who goes out with Hank for a night on the town and a romantic interlude on the beach. Returning him, Hank is some of the. Actually, I shouldn't have stolen their uh, stops. Some of their uh, writing is clearly needs to be edited. <laughs> returning home, it actually says returning him. Returning home, Hank is really excited to have the attention of a beautiful woman. Putting on his beast costume, and again, that would be the X Men one, not the the furry one, Hank decides to go out and expend all his energy. Things meanwhile with Maddox continue to strain as Hank continues his own work and asks Maddox to leave while he f focuses on his work, an action that Carl vows Hank will come to regret. After toiling away in his lab, Hank comes up with a breakthrough, managing to extract the chemical cause of mutation. Wanting to tell Mr. Grant the good news, Hank stops when he overhears Maddox on the phone to speaking to someone named Agent Nine. Realizing that Maddox is working for some evil force, hoping to steal his work, Hank decides to do something about the situation. However, believing that operating in his beast costume would make for an easy connection between Hank McCoy and his alter ego, Hank decides to take the chemical extract to mutate himself further so that he is unrecognized, hoping that he can create an antidote later. Nothing can go wrong there, right? No, not at all. <laughs> Drinking the chemical compound, Hank mutates into a furry beast with enhanced strength and abilities. These were the events that led to Hank's stalking of the security guard. With his recollection over, Hank realizes that he's trapped in this hairy form forever. Furious, the beast goes back into the night, seeking out the one man that he holds responsible for his current condition, Maddox. Maddox has been arrested by the military guards, the security guard having spilled the whole story before being gunned down. The beast bursts into the room and furiously attacks Maddox. When the soldiers attempt to stop the beast, Hank easily defeats them even though they succeed in shooting him a number of times to no avail. Throwing the soldiers aside, Hank grabs Carl by the throat and attempts to choke him to death, but stops short of killing him, unable to intentionally take a human life. Realizing that he has nobody else to blame but himself, Hank then jumps out of a window and back into the night. Reviving, Maddox is held at gunpoint by Linda who is also an agent for the organization that Maddox works for. She shoots Carl dead for his failure and walks out of the room. The story is continued next issue. I remember this. This came out shortly before I started collecting. This is 1972. I think I started collecting in 74, uh, shortly after the book that you're going to be doing. Uh, but I remember I was buying X-Men books when they were in the reprint run. So I was mm -hmm. getting books with the Beast in the blue and red costume or the blue and yellow costume, depending on which era uh, they were reprinting at the time. And I was familiar with that character. And then I was picking up the Steve Englehart Captain America. And in the Secret Empire stories, uh, they were actually capturing mutants and siphoning off uh, energy from them. And I remember they had this big ring with all the captured mutants on it. And they had the beast in his furry form on there. And I was having a tough time acclimating myself to what was what here because I'm reading books where he's in his human form and here he is in, in the uh, furry form. And I, I, at the time, thought they were two separate characters. 
but I eventually sought out all these issues of Amazing Adventures uh, and, and read them and, and kind of became familiar with how the character uh, was just before he joined the Avengers. So this was all in a pretty short span of time. Uh, and, and this story in particular, I really, really enjoy. I mean, there's some of it that, that's bordering on cliche. They're taking the uh, formula that he that he uh, created without testing it, without knowing that he had an antidote and all. But just the paranoia and the kind of jumping back and forth between almost a horror feel and a superhero feel mm-hmm. uh, is done almost effortlessly here. Uh, the, and the artwork particularly adds to it. I know we're, we're, we're here to, to praise Jerry Conway, uh, but Tom Sutton really did a beautiful job on this. This, this, uh, if you showed me this book without a, uh, credits page, I would have said that this is Mike Plug. That, that's what it looks like to me. And, and Mike is famous for his horror work. Um, just everything about it really just, just, just kind of flowed so well, uh, he he is kind of a scary character, and 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 you feel the uh, the panic for him when he can't revert back to his original form. You yeah. also, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's a comic book. You know, it's it's only the, the the printed page, so it's not like real actors and actresses or anything. But the way the relationship with uh, Linda Donaldson builds up, you can almost feel his excitement as it's building up. Uh, even though it seems like it's all happening in one night, which, you know, he's in love at that point and, you know, it's kind of silly. Um, and then to have her at the end actually be a, an evil agent, uh, just every, you know, it's, there's just so much packed in here that, that this, I didn't think it's a wonderful issue. And I'm curious what you think, Mike. Um, this is one of those stories that I knew happened, but I never read it. And I'm always a little... I was a little nervous about that ever since the whole death of the doom patrol turned out to be kind of a damp squib uh for me you know it's one of those things you hear about for years and then you read the actual thing and it's like oh uh here it was not a disappointment this is a mix of ec horror comic mixed with marvel superhero stuff mixed with cheesy 70s sci-fi movies uh, and, and you're right. It's, it's, it, it all blends together so well. I love the opening narration that it's all from, you know, it's, it's from Hank's perspective. So you are Hank in the, you know, the first couple of pages. Yeah. It, it's what's interesting about it is it's not the first person though. It's a narrator yeah. narrating it from your perspective. Cause he's actually saying, uh, you know, your life is this and you're that. So it's treating you as the main character, but it's not you narrating it yourself. Yeah, and it's and it's a good narrative tool. Uh, I, you know, I, you rarely see that. Uh, you rarely see a second person narrative done in a comic book because it's just not, it's not built for that. It's not like a, a short story or a novel. Uh, and, and even with uh, even with novels, I think you would want more would want to stick with more of a short story thing. But it, it involves you in a way that maybe other stories weren't. You know, you say you feel his excitement at the, you know, the, the burgeoning relationship with the girl you just knew was going to screw him over in some way, shape, form, or fashion. And the panic. And, yeah, you can sit here and make fun of certain things. Like, the fact that he did just take this formula without, you know, like, oh, well, maybe I can make up an antidote. Well, that's, that's, that's putting a lot of faith in yourself. But that's kind of the point, you know? It's, it's a little bit of hubris. And, and we talk about elements being adapted elsewhere. I mean, this was 
this idea was pretty much picked up wholesale for X-Men First Class. Yeah. You know, Hank wanted to cure his mutation in that movie and ended up turning himself into a furry beast. Uh, it is interesting to notice he is gray in these first appearances and not blue. I'm kind of wondering where that transition happened. Uh, and it's been a while since I've read this run, but there's another issue, I think two or three away from this one, where this, the, the fur actually darkens him and goes black instead of gray. Ooh. And then from there, I think it goes blue. And I, and I know that the Dark Beast during Age of Apocalypse was gray. I think he was gray. Um, I'm yeah, trying to remember sure that, that time period. No, I loved the story. Uh the artwork took some getting used to, but once I put myself kind of in the EC horror uh, mentality, it was perfect. Yeah, it's certainly not the Marvel House style of the time. Oh, not at all. And, and and it's funny because these characters look like you could see actors playing them. Like Maddox is the typical 70s. I don't even know what kind of character to describe him, but he, he fits perfectly, you know, between his, uh, his uh, turtlenecks and the beard and the longer hair. I mean, he just looks really of that era. And, you know, it's just, I, I loved it. I was really glad you chose this because, uh, and I was really glad that it was on the Marvel unlimited app, uh, so that I could, could read it on the tablet. Uh, it seems like I'm trying to advertise for them. I'm really not. I just love the Marvel unlimited app. Uh, when we first start reading digital comics, we all get excited. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's but, uh, but no, it's just the action was good. The suspense was good. I mean, it's it, it shows what a what a great writer Conway was to be able to mix genres like this. And you know, this is where the the furry beast started. Now he became very different later on, uh, more of a you know carefree type of character. Uh, so it was kind of interested seeing him in the early stages of oh my god, what have I done? type yeah. of thing now have uh, you have you read the rest of this run at any point no i have not but i assume you'll is, now that you've been uh, introduced to it and it is on if it's more on the marvel unlimited i assume you'll be going through the rest but uh it, it's kind of amusing at some point because he basically fashions himself you know latex uh hands and a latex mask so that he can pretend to be his normal self uh <laughs> meanwhile he, you know somehow that fools people uh, and and yet he he still has this relationship with Linda, who he doesn't know is evil, but he can't touch her because that would make it apparent that he's wearing latex. Uh, so you know it, it does cause you know it does require some suspension of disbelief to think that you could even get away with that. Uh, but you know in in these issues, at least in the beginning, he's you know very full of self pity and uh, you know what was me, what have I done? Kind of throughout the early issues here. Uh, and and it just he just starts to kind of break free of that a little bit, and then the series got canceled, and he was replaced by Kill Raven and War of the Worlds. Uh, but you know, then then he got picked up by Steve Englehart in the uh, Avengers, and Englehart ran with it. Yeah, he's one of those rare characters that is uh, both an X Man and an Avenger almost equally uh, in, in in the hearts and minds of fans. I think I. Uh... I, I like him in his X roles, but I really like seeing him in the Avengers because it just makes the team uh, part of the pun. It makes the team more colorful, you know, to, to have not only, you know, cause he's, he's a, he's, he's a good fighter, but he's also incredibly intelligent. 
so and, and and just you know the the relationship that was especially played up by Kurt Busiek with Wonder Man mm-hmm. was always kind of fun as well. So uh, now I got I got a lot of uh, affection for Hank McCoy. So reading this, I actually felt bad uh, because. It's not like he was one. It's not like X Men First Class where he's trying to cure himself. He's kind of forced into this, which makes it. <laughs> there are so many '70s tropes in here, but I just don't care. I really don't. It almost feels like the pilot episode for a Beast television series. <laughs> you know, that's that's a pretty apt description of it. It's. Uh, I mean, I guess they didn't have enough confidence in it to start him as his own series. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that's why they put in Amazing Adventures as a tryout, uh, and he only lasted uh, seven issues, I believe. And the seventh issue was a reprinting of the uh, origin that they had done as a backup feature in the X Men uh, in the the run in in the forties and fifties of those of that series. Uh, so it was really only six original stories, uh, but but I, I I'm surprised it didn't catch on a little bit more because I think this was. Uh, this this I think this was great, honestly. Well, it's definitely got everything you would want in a in a in a series. You know, you have a, a protagonist that is both tragic and heroic. You have action, uh, and then you had that twist with uh, with the girl being a bad guy and shooting somebody in the face. You know, it's done off panel, but you know when you see the gun, it's pointed directly at his forehead. So when she pulls the trigger in the next panel. Uh, he got shot in the face. I mean, that's pretty hardcore. I mean, and, and give credit the artwork good. in that as well. Where, where you know, when when she does shoot it, uh, it shows a close up of her face, and and the dispassionate look on her face kind of tells the whole story. Now, my question for you would be, since you have a, a better handle of this era than I do, you know, I'm only reading about it and kind of secondhand stuff. Um, do you think that the beast was brought out? in this time period because they had recently lifted the restrictions on what horror elements could be in comics, according to the comics code. And maybe this was kind of an attempt to blend because, because Marvel had like the Frankenstein title and, you know, tomb of Dracula. And yeah, they were pretty much just starting nice when this came out. And, uh, I, I, at the time, it hadn't occurred to me, but as I was reading this, I thought more and more that, that they really were trying to intertwine the superhero with the horror. Uh, that's more to this first issue than it is as it continues. It becomes it, it becomes more of a standard superhero fare uh, as it goes on. That's not to say it got bad, but it, 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 it got more focused. This, this was less focused, I thought, to an advantage which usually less focused is a disadvantage. In this case, mm-hmm. I thought it was to an advantage. Uh, and, and basically, they did kind of continue this story into the Avengers uh, with Brand Corporation and, and all of that uh, that was going on. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, but I, I do think that, at least in this first issue, that there was an attempt to blend the horror uh, and, and to see how, you know, basically to see what the reaction was and they might have let that help dictate their focus some. Uh, and I recently read that it was Roy Thomas's idea to mutate the beast, and I think that he was. Right. I think he was big on the horror line too, so that makes me more inclined to think it. I do find it interesting that when he does turn into the beast, it basically rips up the suit that he's wearing. Yeah, uh, and all he does is kind of tie off the pants, you know, what's left of them, the the uh, 
the rags that he's left with, and somehow they quickly turn into a bathing suit for the rest of the issue. Yeah, convenient that. I think uh, probably unstable molecules in his suit. Yeah, unstable molecules are proving to be like Spider-Man's spider sense, where uh, it, they do whatever the story requests that they do. Exactly. <laughs> no, but excellent issue, sir. Excellent issue. Thank you for, for choosing this, because I finally got around to reading it, and uh, it was really enjoyable. I loved it. Oh, and just, just as, as a side mention, I, I mentioned that the cover is by Gil Kane, but if you look down at the bottom left, uh, it's got two initials, and it's GK, Gil Kane, and B.E., Bill Everett, which oh, just, wow. just gives me an even greater appreciation for the quality of it. <laughs> That's like two powerhouses right there. And they're, and thinking of their styles, they would be complementary to each other. And I think they are on this particular cover. I think this is a solid, really solid cover. Yeah, I love that sign. Just, and the Beast. You know, the Beast looks actually better on the cover than I think he does in the issue, but that's not insulting the artwork in the issue because I was really taken by it. But uh, I think he, it, it, this is the more house-style Beast, I guess, for lack of a better term. Because wasn't Gil Kane doing, like, most of the covers at this point? He was definitely doing a lot of them. Uh, yeah, he, I mean, he was he was a big-time cover artist at this point. And, and the... Uh, the, the the picture of him next to the logo almost he almost has a quizzical look on his face with his head tilted to the side like he just just heard some high pitched noise. <laughs> he heard the same uh, high pitched noise that Lex Luthor used to call Superman at the end of <laughs> Superman the movie. Uh, I guess I'm gonna I'll, I'll rate this one. Uh, I really really do like the cover. Uh, I think it, it sets the tone. It it. it you know, you, you you get to see the character and wonder what the heck is going on. There's really no reason necessarily to tie it into uh, the X Men at this point. Mm-hmm. The cover. I think if, if you saw this, you're thinking more horror story. Um, but you know, you have you have your uh, security guards and and the man in the lab coat, so it's already setting up the corporate intrigue kind of going on. Uh, I, I I I have no doubt that if uh, I were buying and I went to the newsstand, I would have bought this book. Uh, I'm going to give it a, an A minus, and uh, I don't, I'm not even sure why I'm subtracting and not just giving it a solid A. I just feel like that's the right spot for it. The interior art is not as dynamic, but it really is moody. Uh, it, it's got some experimental stuff in there as far as the panel layout. Um, again, I think it, it really sets the tone. I think it's really well paced. It moves the story along very quickly, even as it changes tone from the initial uh, you know, attack of the security guard to the flashback sequence, which is more superhero-y, uh, to the love story aspect, and then cutting back to superhero and cutting from that to horror story, uh, and, and, and never skipping a beat. Uh, so I'm going to give the interior art as well an A minus. Uh, it's it's very different from the cover, but quality in its own way, the same way. And story wise, uh, it kept me riveted the entire time. Uh, also, uh, I'm just going to give that a straight out A, and and I'll give the book a. It's somewhere between an A and an A minus, whatever that would be. Um, I'm not really going to differ from you all that much. I, I, the only reason I would give the cover an A minus is I don't like the trade dress. Uh, it, it seems I want to see more of the image and not as much of the, you know, the, 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 the way they frame it essentially. And I know that this is how they did a lot of Marvel covers at the time, but still, uh, but it's still very dynamic. Uh, the interior art, like I said, has a real EC feel to it. 
which will endear me to it because I love the artwork and the various EC titles uh, of the 50s. Uh, so I'll give that a, I'll give that a straight up A, and I'll give the the writing an A too because it it it, it was gutsy going with this type of narration mm-hmm. and uh, mixing all the different genres. But Conway kind of makes it look effortless, so uh, I'll give it an A straight across the way. Now that's it's, it's going to be interesting to see uh, where we go with this because we're taking this book, which is uh, you know we're basically giving it A's, but it's kind of. A, a hidden gem because mm-hmm. this isn't one you hear people talking about much. No. And yet the next book we're going to go to is one of the all-time classics. <laughs> yes, it is. I uh, let's see how that compares to this. I took uh, I, I took the easy way out. Uh, there was no shortcut home here. Um, the Amazing Spider-Man number one twenty-nine, and I and I chose it specifically. Uh, you know, of all of Jerry's books and all of the characters he created, you know. The Punisher has to be my favorite. So going back to his first appearance seemed like the way to go. Uh, this book was cover dated February 1974. It was released on October 30th, 1973. Scripted my birthday. by Ju- the what? I said my birthday. <laughs> October 30th. Yep. Really? Oh, very good. I know. Uh, the Me story and the Punisher t- have the same birthday. <laughs> the story title is The Punisher Strikes Twice. Uh, scripted by Jerry Conway, art by the uh, talking about underrated artists. Uh, Ross Andrew would definitely be uh, on that list. Inks by Giacoya and Hunt, letters by Costanza. Dave Hunt colored it, and the editor was Roy Thomas. And uh, it, it's one of those books that has like awesome cover copy on it, uh, just because of the era that it came out in. You know, you don't you don't see cover copy a lot these days. It's mostly poster shots, but. It says he's different. He's deadly. He's the Punisher, which makes me think of that scene in uh, Spider-Man. I think it was Spider-Man Two. Uh, it's different. It's wow. It's now uh, uh, the most lethal hired assassin ever. His assignment: kill Spider-Man. And just to give everything away on the cover and behind the most murderous plot of all times, there lurks the Jackal. And I think if you're going to list some of the most iconic covers. In Marvel's history, you have to put this cover on there. Oh, absolutely. Uh, despite having a yellow background, you have this really great shot of the Punisher firing a rifle, and you're seeing through the scope Spider-Man evading his blasts. And uh, this has been uh, homage to death, but I love the original. I mean, it's so dynamic, even with the yellow. And I think the yellow actually leads in... in leads into the, my enjoyment of it because yellow is the color of panic so it uh, kind of makes sense that you know Spider-Man's probably sweating bricks a little bit but getting into the story we open on the Punisher opening fire on a plaster statue of uh, Spider-Man as the Jackal watches uh, the Jackal praises the Punisher on his skill and points out that if the Punisher can do this to the real Spider-Man he will be performing a great service they have a short debate on the Punisher's motivations and one thing is clear the Punisher only kills those that deserve killing, and Spider-Man deserves to die. We cut to Spider-Man, who is busy slinging his way through the city and thinking about how crummy the pollution is. He happens on some out-of-town crooks, and at first they think he's as crooked as they are, but Spider-Man lays the smack down on them and leaves the crew webbed up for the police. After the fight, he reflects on how he won't, how this won't earn him any points with the authorities, as everyone is still convinced that he killed Norman Osborn thanks in large part to the Daily Bugle. 
We also get caught up on the fact that Norman was the Green Goblin, Goblin killed Peter's girlfriend, Gwen Stacy, and stepping forward to clear himself might jeopardize his secret identity. In other words, situation normal for the Amazing Spider. Peter changes into his civilian clothes and heads to the Daily Bugle. After a short exchange with Betty Brant, who invites him to a party, Peter is yelled at by J. Jonah Jameson about this new Punisher fella. The long and short of it is that Jameson wants pictures of this guy, and Peter heads out to get them despite not having any clue where to look. He swings around the city trying to figure out how to get said pictures when his spider sense goes off. He narrowly avoids a con concussion projectile and spots his attacker on a nearby rooftop. Realizing it's the Punisher, Spider-Man confronts him and asks the Punisher why he's trying to kill him. The Punisher calls him a murderer. He shoots a stretch of titanium alloy wire momentarily trapping the wall crawler. After the Punisher gives his reason to be, crime is out of control, but I'll risk what is left of my useless life to take people like you down, etc., Spider-Man manages to break free and delivers a vicious right cross, knocking the Punisher into a nearby chimney. Hiding inside the chimney is the Jackal. No, really, he's inside the chimney. I, I really don't know how this seemed like a good idea, but uh, it, it, the point's kind of moot because the Jackal is a tad annoyed that the Punisher underestimated Spider-Man's strength. He pops up and hits Spider-Man with his claws, which sends our hero off the ledge. The Jackal forgot about Spider-Man's ability to overcome pain, uh, probably one of his lesser-known superpowers. <laughs> and even though his landing is rough, he manages to do so without, you know, dying. He heads back to the chimney and finds that his attackers have escaped, but gets a clue in the form of one of the Punisher's discarded weapons, which bears the name of Rice Armorers. Armorers is a hard word to say. Peter heads home and we get caught up on his money troubles, the Spider-Mobile, Harry not paying the rent, which is followed uh, by us seeing Harry at the door, acting 16 different kinds of paranoid. After a quick check-in with Mary Jane and Professor Warren, we find the Jackal getting belted across the room by the Punisher. It seems they have a difference of opinion on the best way to kill Spider-Man. Apparently, knocking someone off a building to die by accident isn't the way the Punisher does things. Jackal pretty much has had enough of the Punisher at this point and is content to move on now that he believes Spider-Man to be dead. And I want to point out that he thinks all of this, so it's not something that he says out loud, which makes what happens next a little confusing. The Punisher leaves to see the mechanic uh, to get his wire gun fixed as Spider-Man tracks down Rice Armorers. Punisher spots Spider-Man entering the building and is a little more than surprised that he's not dead. A situation the Punisher plans to correct immediately. Spider-Man discovers the body of Reese just as the Punisher crashes in and kicks him across the room. We see the Punisher sees the body and immediately thinks that Spider-Man is the culprit because everyone thinks Spider-Man is the culprit. Spider-Man and the Punisher debate this idea as they fight with Spider-Man finally getting the upper hand or foot in this case. He shows the Punisher the claw marks on his friend's back and the two sort the matter out. Turns out that the Punisher didn't leave the weapon with Reese's plate on it. The Jackal did to bring Spider-Man to Reese's place. The Jackal killed Reese and then pinned the murder on Spider-Man to get the Punisher even more pissed off so he'd kill the wall crawler. Keep in mind, this is after he's decided to move on from the Punisher. And, and after he thought Spider-Man was dead anyway. Yeah. Spider-Man follows this up by saying that he's not a murderer, he's one of the good guys. The Punisher is furious that the Jackal used him, swears the villain will pay. Spider-Man asks for the Punisher's origin story, but he claims that that is his business and not Spider-Man's. 
Maybe when he's dead, that will mean something. But right now, he's just a warrior fighting a lonely war and presupposing a green day song from the uh, from the early 2000s. Uh, the Punisher leaves, and after hearing sirens, so does Spider-Man. The Jackal watches from a distance uh, and thinks that while Spider-Man escaped this time, he promises he will destroy the hero. So swears the Jackal. And apparently we will learn more about the Jackal's evil plan next issue, which also features Hammerhead. And, and the uh, Spider-Mobile. And the Spider-Mobile. And I loved this book. <sighs> you know, a couple years ago, I realized that my Marvel Tales run had the the stretch of that book that actually reprinted all of the Punisher appearances. Uh, when the Punisher became really popular in the late 80s, Marvel Tales, for a very brief period, devoted all of their issues to Spider-Man's various run-ins with the Punisher. And I don't know if you remember this, they had these gorgeous Mike Zek covers. No, uh, that that was during the, the stretch when I was not collecting comics. Yeah, I found them all in a 50-cent bin. Hey, Alan, how you doing? Uh, <laughs> Professor Alan Quarterbin as uh, I think he is now being called. Uh, he's probably he's probably turning his nose up to you because you paid double what you should. Yeah, but, well, he, 50 cents is still better than than full price. But, no, they had these uh, beautiful Mike Zek covers. Uh, his take on this cover, uh, very different, but it's Mike Zek so, doing a cover, so it's going to look good. And I, I read through all of them, and it's really funny seeing these initial Punisher appearances. Uh, because they don't go into it here, but he used mercy bullets and swore that if he ever actually killed anybody, he would uh, give up being the Punisher. He made some agreement with Spider-Man. Uh, you don't get any of that here. He's, well, that's uh, a retcon, though, because even in this, he's saying, you know, Spider-Man deserves to die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't get any of that here. You get a Punisher that a uh, little easily misled. And very different from the Frank Castle of today, or, you know, that Garth Ennis would write, or even Stephen Grant. But I really like this initial appearance. Uh, it, he is very much in the mold of Mac Bolin and, you know, all of the other, you know, executioner-type characters uh, that were very popular in men's fiction. And, and if you're not aware, folks, there was a time where men's fiction was a big genre. Uh, the 70s was kind of the heyday of that with the Destroyer and the Executioner. And uh, am I, what else am I missing there? I, I, you know what, offhand, I'm, 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 I'm drawing a blank. So we'll just go with that. But, uh, you know, it's But it's I, do, I do know the stories you're talking about. And yes, you are right. They were very big. I, I, I don't want to downplay it with my own lack of knowledge. But, you know, it's just here's a character that obviously has a lot going on. I mean, Spider-Man has the, the, the quote at the end that, you know, he, he's got problems that make Spider-Man's look like a picnic. Uh, and it would be years before we would find out the Punisher's origin. Uh, that would have come, I think it was Marvel Super Special. They had a yep. black and white story probably, I'd say, two, three years after this. And here's the funny thing about that. Uh, I, I tracked down, uh, shortly after it came out, the first Essential Punisher volume mm -hmm. that reprints all of this. But it also reprints the black and white material. And it's kind of funny to go back and read that stuff because the Punisher black and white magazine stories in the 70s read like the Stephen Grant, Mike Barron Punisher stories of the 80s. 
Well, because they, they were, were allowed to do things in those magazines that they were prohibited from doing in the comics. Absolutely. So it had a much grittier feel. Much more it. mature. Yeah, and, and mature in a good way, not mature in, hey, we can show boobies and say, you know, the F word. every. And month. that's not a good way? <laughs> well, it depends on who you, you talk about, you know, talking to, because, you know, maybe some people don't like boobies. There's, there's no <laughs> maybe somebody doesn't, things. but I haven't met him yet. <laughs> but, um, but, no, I really like, you know, that you have this character who has a moral code, but that code includes, you know, if you're a bad guy and I think you deserve it, I'm going to kill you. And it's not the master tactician Punisher we would get later because he seems very easily misled by the Jackal. But that works for this story. Um, artistically, this is a gorgeous issue. I love this first take on the Punisher because it's it's kind of different from what you would see in the 80s where he was more like kind of leading man handsome. This guy's not attractive. He's got a receding hairline. Uh, he's obviously a bit older. And uh, just not, he's, he's not an attractive individual. But the way Andrew and the inkers draw him, uh, man, I love the fact that the gloves and the boots were black at first. It's just such a better design than the, the white boots and gloves that would come later. But there are, there are some pages, that page and that panel especially, of the Punisher leaping into the into the Reese's office and kicking Spider-Man not only across the room but across the panels. There's just so much power in that, and you know this is followed up by a, a gorgeous uh, uh, panel where Spider-Man is leaping around and finally kicks him in the chest. I mean, I, I really just have no no real problems with the artwork. Because even the Jackal, who should look silly, looks really good and really dynamic. Um, I like Andrew's Spider-Man as well. I think he drew he draws... Spider-Man kind of had a house style throughout the 70s. You know, whether it was Andrew or like Jim Mooney drawing him. But he always looks good. Uh, the only piece of art that kind of creeps me out is Peter Parker trying to fake a smile uh, towards the beginning of the issue. Uh, it looks really weird, but no, I, I love this story. Uh, some of the later ones aren't as good as this, uh, but I, I, I like this origin, uh, or not this origin, but this first appearance. I, and, and I know from Coyote Ugly, it's, it's worth a thousand bucks. Because somebody wants to, somebody wants to give a thousand bucks for it. I will pull my issue out of storage. <laughs> yeah, mister, I got this issue, you know, you know, like the, the real copy of, I, I actually saw one once. My brother-in-law had it. Uh, when I when I purchased this issue, it was only three months old. Wow! So it was not that expensive. Yeah, and and that's something I wanted to ask you because you have a better perspective on this. What, what you know? Did you read Spider Man through the seventies? Yes. Yes. Did you? I, I started with the issue. I started two issues after this. Okay. Uh, when Doc Ock was marrying Aunt May on the cover, <laughs> uh, and. You know, and, and it, that was, I had read comic books before. I've, I've told this story probably so many times that people are going to yawn. But I'd read comic books before, but for some reason, when I picked up issue 131 of Spider-Man, all of a sudden I became aware of this overarching universe that existed, and I wanted to be a part of it. And I started buying everything I could get my hands on that I had enough money to get. And uh, I, I was, Spider-Man was my favorite, was and is my favorite comic character. 
So did you like when the Punisher would pop up every once in a while? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I, 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 so I read this issue. I read the first appearance of the Punisher before the second appearance came out. Okay. And uh, the one thing I can tell you, I do remember, and I still look through this and I say, yeah, you know, that was a valid point, was they made him, you know, quite an enigma, I think, intentionally. But when this, when I read this issue, I thought he had superpowers. I thought he was super strong because there's several shots here. Uh, when when Spider-Man punches him and he hits into the chimney, the bricks on the chimney break. Yeah. And he gets up again. And there's a couple of points where he's punching the wall and the wall breaks. So I thought he was super strong. Or even the way he, he backslaps the jackal across the page. And I was eventually surprised to find out that, no, he's just a, basically a Green Beret. Yeah, I you know, and you could you can no prize it that his his costume is armor or lightweight armor, so he could he could survive getting you know <laughs> punched into a wall by Spider Man. Uh, uh, no, because he hits it with his head. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> uh, well, you know those vets, they're kind of they're kind of hardcore. So you know, no, they call them jawheads. So. <laughs> no, I the Punisher is one of my favorite Marvel characters. Uh, I, I discovered him in the late eighties because I was a teenager in the late eighties and, you know, the Punisher was huge. And, uh, you know, the, the, the only time period I really am not a big fan of is, and I'm not saying this to insult the man at all, but I thought Bill Mantlo's take on this character was really wrongheaded, uh, by making him basically crazy. Mm-hmm. Cause, cause I don't think, I don't see the Punisher as crazy. He knows exactly what he's doing. Yeah, he's just incredibly single-minded. Yeah, I mean, this is a man that lost his family in in one of the most violent ways possible. And it's almost like between that and, you know, between the PTSD from that and the PTSD from serving in the military, you know, this is just how he dealt with it. Now, you know, there's different ways of playing him. You know, Chuck Dixon had a really good handle on him. I love the Stephen Grant limited series uh, from the uh, from 1986, uh, which you know has a really good first issue and then turns into your like your typical 80s action film. But that's not a bad thing. So I, I kind of see why the character took off. Uh, oddly enough, as much as I like the character, I think the less you see of him, the better. Uh, I thought one of the reasons why the character kind of became muddled is because he was so oversaturated in the 90s i mean he was in like what three different titles yeah punisher war journal punisher war zone and punisher yep you know this guy is this guy to me is a six issue limited series once a year because once you read like 50 punisher stories in a row they all kind of blend together i mean you can have jigsaw you can have different bad guys but you know he's he's got one of the best motivations in the world Crime killed his family, so he's going to kill crime back. I mean, that's 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 it. That's it in a nutshell. And if you try to overcomplicate it by, say, making him an angel... <laughs> <coughs> excuse, excuse me. You know, you're, you're kind of ruining the point of the character. Uh, I think some of the best Punisher is when he's treated seriously and single-mindedly. You know, with with some gray, with some shading. You know, where where he has to make some moral choices within the moral choices. So, but now I love this first issue. Uh, 
or this first appearance. So, uh, but I've been I've been babbling more uh, than you. So, well, not, I don't think you've been babbling at all because I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I, I, I agree with you about the you know the moral choices. I think that's a huge factor, and I think he's a character that, despite my railing against it so often, I think he lends himself well to decompressed storytelling, mm-hmm. where you can, you can give a, a very highly detailed story about uh, what it is he's doing and what's going on and the elaborate plans that are going on and, and you know, have, have things develop very slowly and try and put, present it in a cinematic way. I think that that kind of serves this character really, really well. Uh, whereas just having an all-out action story uh, doesn't because it'll just turn incredibly repetitive incredibly quickly. So I think in, in order to serve the character well, I think you need to flesh out exactly what's going on in the plot and, and what, what it is he's trying to uh, break up in an individual time, you know, what, what kind of schemes are going on and that type of thing. Uh, he he needs to almost be a background character in, in the story, in his own story. And I think yeah. that, that serves him best. And then yeah, you can occasionally zoom in for a close-up and then pull back again. Yeah, I just I, I just think he's a more nuanced character than people give him credit for. I'm really hoping there's rumors. I don't know if it's been confirmed or not, but I've read rumors that Netflix might be doing a Punisher series. And I think, I think you go right in with the Marvel series that they're doing now. Yeah, and I think that we'll finally get... I mean, nothing against Thomas Jane, who I thought was great. And Ray Stevenson was good. Even Dolph Lundgren, for what he was doing. I mean, you know, he wasn't terrible. Uh, He's not the master thespian, I I will admit that. But he's not a bad action actor either, you know? So, I I think it's it's really easy to screw him up. Uh, I am not a fan of the... Garth Ennis, welcome back, Frank storyline. Uh, I really don't like that story. As a matter of fact, I, I would be I, lying if I told you I didn't. I did enjoy that. Uh, but you know, for me, it's just I like Garth Ennis's um, Max series much better because it was just it was just everything I wanted in a Punisher story. So uh, you know, it, it's really funny. And 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 the thing is, is that. At, things kind of got silly at po- different points in the 70s with, with the Punisher, I think. But if you read the first appearance, like if you read Welcome Back, Frank, or if you read even the Max storyline, and then went back and read this, it's not too terribly dissimilar, if that makes any sense. Um, like, I, may be miss- I may be missing the point of how, it's, how, how, how they match up. I just think that the to go kill those that I think need killing matches up pretty much with you know just about any interpretation of the character. Oh, okay, I, okay, yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. You know, once you start bringing in mercy bullets, things kind of get muddled, but still. Well, that's just that's a, that's just an effort to not have him be a killer. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I don't think that serves the character well. No, not at all. <laughs> uh, you know, and let's let's not undersell the fact that the jackal is introduced in this issue too, and he's a pretty creepy villain. Yes, he is. That's and a I think great that's exactly design. what he's meant to be. It's such a good design for the character, and really, when you think about it, I mean, he's integral to. Spider-Man's uh, next twenty or some odd years, 
you know, even though, you know, he's, he's, he's integral to the original clone saga. And then that all gets brought back up during the, uh, the subsequent, uh, clone saga as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I, I like the fact that, you know, he's played true to the, uh, to the type of, of animal that he's, <laughs> that he's, uh, masquerading as, you know, hiding in the background, basically being, you know, a scavenger, uh, he's he's not going to battle Spider-Man full out. He just comes up behind and basically, you know, claws at the back of his head. Yeah, and 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 you know he's got some sort of electric claws that that you know not only does he cut his head, but he basically gives him a shock while he's doing it. Uh, and that's I don't know. I remember that just kind of creeping me out a little bit when I first read it. <laughs> And especially when it, when it cuts to the shot then uh, on the next page, where he's got his mask and it's got four uh, four gashes in it where where the uh, jackal clawed at him. So you yeah. know he, he's he's played and he, you know he's mysterious. You don't know who he is, what is what's going about. Uh, there was a time where I had mistakenly thought that you know he, that he was there to pick up the vacuum that was left with them killing off the Green Goblin, uh, but. You know, I mean, it's pretty obvious that that's not the case because they're already laying the groundwork in this issue for Harry being the Green Goblin now. Yeah, it's it seemed to be more... He's kind of a classic type Spider-Man villain. Uh, you know, he's mysterious, so you have that little bit of, you know, goblin feel to him because you didn't know who the Green Goblin was at first either. And they would carry that on with the Hobgoblin, obviously, but... You know he he's got a he's got a weird costume. He's an animal type character, so that kind of fits in with Spider-Man's rogues gallery. Uh, he's clearly do, got an agenda against Spider-Man, and we don't know why. Yeah, I mean, really, the only drawback to this issue is the fact that why would the Jackal continue with his effort to make Spider-Man think that Reese Armors is part of this whole thing if he thought he was dead? So it <laughs> yeah. doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It really doesn't. Yeah, it's hard to no prize that one away. Unless he did it all beforehand, just in case. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. Well. <laughs> also, but, uh, uh, you know, the Punisher reaches into the chimney to get that gun with the uh, the wire. Yeah. Uh, was the Jackal in there at the time? <laughs> I don't know. There's something you want to commission from an artist, a, a picture of the Jackal handing him the, the wire gun. Yeah. <laughs> like you could see inside of it, you see him like, you know, Spider-Man off, you know, to, into the distance. <laughs> how did the Spider-Man, how did Spider-Man know it was titanium? I mean, you know, it's just like, there's little things you can nitpick about this story that doesn't, but it still doesn't detract from the overall enjoyment I got out of the comic uh, and how well written I thought it was. So, I mean, it's two characters that are very of their time period, uh, and yet were good foils for Spider-Man. Because, you know, it puts Spider-Man, eventually puts Spider-Man in kind of a morally ambiguous position where he's he's allied with the Punisher, but, he, you know, Spider-Man doesn't indiscriminately kill people. So, mm-hmm. that, you know, that's that's a little different. It's, it's why I always like stories where, like, Spider-Man has to, like, work with Daredevil and the Punisher, is you have these three very different types of heroes. But then again, I'm more of a fan of a Spider-Man that fights street-level villains anyways over, like, supervillains, just because I think Spider-Man works great in the crime noir-type genre. But that's that's has nothing to do with the Punisher, really. So. But, uh, 
Another, another point with this issue is the letters page contains a letter from uh, Ralph Macchio of New Jersey. Ah, oh, very good. Former uh, future Spider-Man editor, if I'm correct. Yeah. I believe you are. So uh, probably not the, uh, the actor. No, no. Uh, Ralph, Ralph Macchio, the actor, I believe lives in Long Island. Really? Pretty sure. So. He seems like a nice guy. Uh, that's, that's actually where, what I've heard from, from people who live in his neighborhood. <laughs> uh, you got anything else on this before we grade it? Uh, uh I just, yeah, like you, I love this issue. So I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, there's not going to be any suspense to my, uh, grading. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Give you, give your grades, your book. Oh, uh, the cover's got to be an A. I mean, it's just one, it's iconic and two, it looks great, which is a good combination. Uh, I'll give the interior art an A as well, mainly because, like you said, the the jackal looks creepy. I think the Punisher looks great. He looks very different, uh, much older, kind of a middle-aged character, which is not something you see very often. And his, uh, you know, the costume design hasn't changed all that much, but there's something really cool about the skull starting at his collar Mm -hmm. and working its way down instead of just being like a symbol on his chest. Uh, and I think that had everything to do with John Romita Sr. Uh, and his design for the character. But uh, no, the action was good. The the scenes at the bugle and with Her- and with Peter's friends were great. So I'm going to give that an A too. I'm actually going to give the story an A mainly because the thing at the end did kind of stand out to me that you know the whole end of the issue depends on them knowing Spider-Man's alive and they both thought he was dead. I mean, the Punisher sees him and he's surprised. So, but how did the Jackal know, you know, cause the Jackal halfway through the issue says, oh, I'm done with him and then continues to use him. So that's fair just, enough. I, I don't think that's an unfair criticism. I'm going to, I'm going to one, one up you on the cover and I'm going to say a plus. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> so it's like one of the prices, right? Uh, cause, cause it is iconic and it's beautiful and just, uh, I can find no fault in it. Uh, the only thing that just as I'm looking at the cover, uh, paying a little more close attention to it, is he does have the white gloves and boots on the cover. I guess he does. I'm looking at uh, the digital version, so I don't know if that is colored the way, it, you know, because sometimes they change the coloring when they change. Um, well, I'm also I'm looking at it from the from the DVD version, but, uh, you know, the, the, the 40 years of Spider-Man. Uh, okay. But uh, I assume it's the original coloring on there. So white gloves, white boots. Uh, but other than that, uh, and I, I really don't have a problem with that look on the cover either. I mean, that is the, the the way he's drawn on the cover is more the classic Punisher and less the way he's drawn in the interior of this issue. Uh, but his face is covered by the the uh, scope on the rifle anyway, so you can't really tell. Uh, but A plus on the cover is that's just one of the all time all time greats, and that's why it's been copied so much the interior art and then as i page through it the first thing that jumps out at me is where, where do you buy the plaster uh spider-man statues so that you can take target practice with them uh, I, I want the deleted scene of them making it later <laughs> sitting there with it the, with the mold uh, but uh the interior art is really solid it's the action sequences in particular really jump out at you um Ross Andrew is, is, as you said, he's another underappreciated artist. After John Romita, he's probably my Spider-Man artist. Uh, the yeah, I gotta say, a on the interior art, There's, I can really find no fault with it. it. It's it moves along well. It's again, the action sequences are awesome. Uh, 
everything about it just is really good. And I, I also like the way the Punisher was drawn here. And he was more of a, uh, I guess, I guess you know, he was considered more to be a borderline villain at this point. So they could draw him a little harsher looking. And then when they wanted to make him heroic, you had to soften him up just a little bit. Uh, but I, I like this look in particular. I think this this kind of lends itself to the personality that he gives. Story wise, uh, you, you know, you, you you have a very very good point on the fact that they think he's dead, and yet they're acting as if they don't. Um, that said, it really does set up two all time well, one all time great character and one pivotal character. Uh, all the while keeping suspense on both of them as to what their backstories are, why why they're doing what they're doing, uh, and yet differentiate excuse me differentiate differentiating between the motivations of the two. Where you you know the jackal is just a a bad guy, and you know that the Punisher is is not you know that at least his motivations are uh, just. Uh, so I'm going to just say solid A on the story, despite the the one hiccup in it, uh, and overall it's just an A. So we got. Two books from the same era, both A's, both Jerry Conway, uh, one very well known, one not quite as well known, uh, but in my opinion, almost equally enjoyable. Well, how about that? Two books and they both got A's. How do we manage that? Well, maybe maybe it's a reflection on the fact that it's a Jerry Conway day. <laughs> I don't know, but, uh, you know. It should almost be a national holiday, shouldn't it? Jerry Conway day. <laughs> I'm sure Jerry would be okay with that. And my, my last little Jerry Conway story is, you know, I, I started buying comics again in 1974 before my 12th birthday. So I was 11 years old at the time. And, you know, what? Yeah, you're reading comics. I mean, what do you figure? The guys were writing about 40, 50 years old. I think mm-hmm. Jerry Conway was I, w- I was 11, and I think Jerry Conway might have been 21 or 22. Uh, and now I'm 52. But a couple of years ago on Facebook, I guess I was probably about 49 and I think Jerry was 59, and uh, it was his birthday, and I, I, I commented to him about how when I was 11, he was so, so much more older than me than he is now, and his response back to me was that, you know, give it time, and I'm going to pass him up. <laughs> That's great. So, he's a, you know, I, I found him to be a very engaging uh, and uh, entertaining guy, and I would just say as, as a final thought from me on uh, Jerry Conway is... Thank you for all the entertainment over the course of the years that I've been reading comics because your work holds up against anybody else. Yeah, um, I'll echo that. I I just think he's a phenomenal talent, uh, and I'm hoping that the the hints that were given in that interview with the Fire and Water podcast that we do see some new work from him soon, besides what he's currently writing with Spider-Man. I hope so. uh, It would be my pleasure to read it. So we got some email. All right. Well, our first email for today is from our buddy Tim Elliott. Tim who? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) And this is from March 26th. So we are a little behind on our email. It's titled Back to the Bins number 190 or Oh, What a Tangled Web We Weave. Greetings, guys. I'm going to keep this short, but wanted to comment on the Spider-Man issue covered in the show. I was a big fan of McFarlane when he first hit the scene, but I, but I have since cooled on him. 
I feel his big contribution to Spider-Man was when he changed the look of Spider-Man's webbing. Spidey's webs were always drawn as cross-hatching, but McFarlane drew them as intricately spun gooey ropes. This look was imitated for years after. Cheers, Tim Elliott. Uh, He did, but he also drew them as physics-defying gooey, intricate ropes. And that's probably the thing that that got tiresome after a while, I think. Uh, it was very stylistic, and I enjoyed his stuff. And I don't know, I, I still like it, but it, I, I hate. I like to separate the uh, the work from the man. Mm. Well, he's and not even. It's harder. He's got his toy company now, and his action figures lines, and he doesn't even really even do art any any drawing anymore, does he? I don't think he does much at all. Yeah. Hmm. So. I don't think I was on this particular. I don't think I was on this episode. No, that was Scott, myself, and uh, Dave Weeder. Oh, yeah. you missed out on that one. I don't recall. There was some very, very good reason why you couldn't make it. I just don't know what it was. Gas. Mm, just, just to throw a plug in, and I don't know when it's going to show up on online. It may already. By the time this airs, it may be on already. But uh, uh, yeah, Tim and Brian Hughes are going to be starting a uh, John Byrne podcast. Woohoo! And uh, I wish them much luck. And I'll tell you, as a big Burn fan and as friends of Tim and Brian, I plan on listening, and I fully anticipate being totally entertained by it. Good luck, guys, and I'm looking forward to it. Let me entertain you. Let nah, never mind. <laughs> oh, I have the next one. Uh, in theory. My God, is this an email or a dissertation? Oh, <laughs> quit your belly aching. <laughs> What? 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 I wasn't even on this show. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You want me to read it? No, no, no. I'll read it. Maybe we'll tag team it. Maybe if I get tired and need a nap halfway through, then you can take over. I got to flex the eye muscles up and down and over and over, up and down and over. See, I'm doing eye, eye push-ups right now. You can't see that. Anyway, maybe, maybe this one because uh, just just for the record, this is an email from Kyle Benning, uh, where, where he took great put put a great amount of work into putting together a uh, a long detailed email covering several points. So maybe after each point, we should stop and maybe discuss it a little. Yeah, yeah. All right, here we go from Mr. Benning back to the bins one ninety. I am very overdue sending in formal feedback here to Ben's. The past few months, I've been leaving my comments, expressing my enjoyment on Facebook. You guys have really put on some great, entertaining episodes here in 2015. Keep up the fantastic work as always. After all of the great discussion you guys had on episode 190, the McFarlane and Grell episode, I just had to chime in and offer my two cents, 3.5 cents in Canada. First off, with regards to the DC Silver Age slash Bronze Age discussion, I wholeheartedly agree with all of you that DC did not have a true quote-unquote Bronze Age. I subscribe to the idea that the Silver Age, as far as the DC Universe is concerned, starts with Barry Allen's introduction and ends with his death and the conclusion of Crisis. You have that 6-18 to 18 month spike starting about halfway through 1970 where some DC books took on a Bronze Age feel but it was short-lived. These books were pretty much marked by being written by Denny O'Neill with art and the very least covers. Oh, oh, at the very least covers by Neil Adams, Green Lantern, slash Green Arrow, 
Batman, Ra's al Ghul's story, and the Kryptonite Nevermore and Superman. After those short runs ended, the Silver Age aesthetic, tone, status quo was reinstated and continued until the end of Crisis. This tone or aesthetic was furthered by DC's giant books that reprinted Silver Age stories. Whether it was the 80-page giants, the page counts were reduced by the number, uh, but, but, the, but, but the numbering stuck, 100-page Super Spectaculars, or other giant series like DC Superstars, DC Special, or DC Supergiant, DC was reprinting materials from the 1950s and 1960s and had it on shelves next to their current products. Some of these were a mixture of new stories with reprints, but regardless, DC was perpetuating that same tone and making these stories contemporary with the new comics on the stands. Professor Allen and I discussed this in a bit on episode 15 of my podcast, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, when we covered DC Superstars in Space, number two, from 1976, that, among other things, reprinted an Adam Strange and Hawkman crossover story that was from 1964. That story was 12 years old at that point, but the art and tone were still very much in the same vein as the new stories DC was publishing in 1976. If you need further proof, look no further than DC Comics presents. Look no further than, excuse me, the DC Comics presents title. Superman team up adventures that in that series that began in the 1970s are very silver agey. And I know that's what Russell uh, Bragg is actually covering uh, on his podcast right now, where he had started doing. So there we go. I thought the tone of that particular book, just to start with the last part, with the DC Comics Presents, I thought the tone of that book was very inconsistent, as I think it is with most team-up titles. Uh, There were stories that were more sophisticated. There were stories that were downright silly. And there were stories that were in between. So uh, I'm not sure if that's the best example or not. Uh, As far as uh, Kyle's podcast, I have to say I'm very, very disappointed because I've subscribed to it on iTunes. It shows up on my feed, and for some reason when I go to play it through my iPod, it it refuses to play. So I haven't really had a chance to listen to too much of the show, which is disappointing because I'd like to. Uh, I may have to go like directly to a website and download them from there, I think, to listen to them because I'm not having any luck with the iPod. Uh, but I generally, as a general uh, proposition, I, I would say I agree with uh, with what Kyle's saying as far as the Silver Age uh, and, and, again, just the kind of glimpses of Bronze Age until they finally got through Crisis. And then they just joined the Modern Age without really ever having a Bronze Age. Yeah, I mean, I've like I've said in the past, I've not been a big, big DC reader of stuff in the past, just touching on a few lines here and there. So I don't really, I mean, from everything that I've seen, it has does seem to be kind of a, you know, that it seems like it's all Silver Age and that Marvel for me has always seemed more, had a more, I don't want to say mature, but had a different feel to it than the DC stuff. Yeah, I would. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'll take the next paragraph just because Kyle did write a very lengthy <laughs> dissertation here. Uh, for McFarlane, I think his finest work was when he started Spawn. To me, that is definitely the best example of him writing, and I think it's the best example of his artwork. That character is really suited for his stylized artwork. I never cared for his Hulk art. Uh, I did. I just did not care for his Rocky Dennis look of Hulk <laughs> and his wonky anatomy on Spider-Man. I think this Spider-Man number one issue is probably the worst example of both his writing and art. 
I think, unfortunately, that his this free reign that Todd was given on Spider-Man number one really is the source for the gigantic ego he would end up developing. Here was a book where he was given unlimited free reign to cut loose, and the result is bad art and worse storytelling, yet it sold like gangbusters and had to immediately inflate his head to the point that you can just picture him telling editors that he doesn't need their advice. His unchecked work is the highest selling there is. After the success he had when he was unleashed, there was no way any editor could come in and try to tell him what to do after that without Todd's ego rearing its ugly head. Yeah, I would I would tend to agree, and I think that was kind of what we concluded in the episode. Uh, I did like his work on on the Hulk, uh, in in on at least in certain issues. I thought it was pretty good, and honestly, I've never read any sustained run on Spawn at any point. I've only really kind of been uh, exposed to it in dribs and drabs, so I can't comment on the quality of that work really. Well. I was collecting Spawn when it came out, and I also was getting these. Um, uh, I was getting his, his Spider-Man run too, because I was when I was in the Navy and had a lot of disposable income. And I liked Spawn better than I liked Spider-Man. I, I didn't. It, Spawn was a little more interesting at the time. I know it's now up to like issue. It's somewhere in the two hundreds. I mean, I think I lost it. I think I fell off of it after about the second or third year, and. Um, haven't really been back to it yet <laughs> maybe when i get that time in the future yeah right but um as for his talk work i also I mean, didn't bother me it didn't wow me either but yeah some of his spider-man stuff was kind of crazy looking you know like kyle said with the anatomy oh yeah no question his anatomy was off and his physics were off uh but when he was right when he was Drawing things that other people were scripting, I, I still think the quality was higher. And again, I never read Spawn, so you know that that does seem to be the consensus. Uh, certainly, best writing he ever did, uh, and I can't really say anything because I don't have an educated point of view on that one. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I found interesting with Spawn was one of the uh, I, I can't, can't remember if you guys had mentioned it during the that the one episode that one of the starting things that 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 took place with the character was he had a limited amount of power like it like there was a countdown every time he used his power for some reason it it would there would be like a subtraction of a number so at some point you knew he was going to burn out all his power and it was like a mystery at first what was going to happen to him you know was he then going to go to hell etc etc so but i think they probably wrote around that I, I remember I remember hearing about that, and I just always figured at some point they'll have a magic clock reset kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So, uh-oh, someone has let Alvin into the room. Dun, just dun, just dun. Make, sure you, make sure your throat is guarded. <laughs> take the next paragraph? Yeah. Uh, this issue definitely does seem to be ground zero for the decompressed story, and I think that due to the high sales it achieved, it was prob it was pretty it was probably pretty instrumental. What is he taking notes from Stan Lee? That it was probably pretty instrumental in getting Marvel into collecting and releasing trade paperbacks. In 1990, the idea of trade paperbacks was still pretty new. Marvel has the fireside book collections in the late 1970s, and then put out a few collected editions in the in the 80s. But most of those collections were material from the 60s. The concept of reprinting new material in collected editions wasn't really a thing in 1990, yet Marvel collected this Torment story and released it a trade in 1992. 
I think Scott is definitely right. Oh, God, we'll never hear the end of this. Oh, sorry. Shh, maybe you won't listen. Ah, he's not listening. This started the decompressed storytelling method and really kicked off the modern age trade paperback publishing as well. And, of course, it also kicked off the age of excessive variant covers and really planted the seed of Image Comics. Think of all the changes this book right here is responsible for bringing to the comic industry. Changes that 25 years later are still very crucial parts of the way comics are published. Does that make this one of the all-time most important comics ever published, despite it being downright terrible? Maybe. Uh, maybe. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we recently uh, we did an episode of Qu- the Quarterbin podcast where we focused on the 1990s boom and bust in comics. And uh, the focus of that was Torak number one, which mm-hmm. is, uh, con- you know, often a whipping boy for the 1990s. And... You know, as Kyle's saying here, I, I think uh, maybe the Spider-Man number one is much, much more the, uh, you know, the the villain than than Torak was because Torak really was not that bad of a book when we reviewed it. Yeah, I was listening in, in on that, and then the follow-up that uh, Professor Allen did with Chag. Uh, that was a pretty interesting episode that kind of raised a lot of the points that that are being brought up here too. Yeah, I would highly recommend anyone if they have not listened to that to go pick to go pick that up, to go, <laughs> to go give a li- give a listeny a looksy a pop in a listen a listen over to was that a short box showcase or was no, that it was a quarter bin that, that was a episode quarter number fifty and then and then I don't think it was episode fifty one I think it was just a bonus episode you got the but bonus two, plan two baby oh what's that I was I was doing a movie line sorry. Oh, okay. I said, you got the bonus plan. Oh, come on. Name the movie. Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Well, you're the only well, one here. It's, uh, clearly, it's, I mean, from the way you're saying it, it sounds like Andrew Dice Clay. You are it's, you are correct. So there's not a lot of movies to go with there. Uh, I'm going to go with, uh, what's the one with Leah Thompson? Uh, I can't remember the name of it. Dude, well, you dude. would be you would be wrong. Okay. It is the Adventures of Ford Fairlane. Oh, one of his one of his actual starring vehicles. I love that movie. That movie is oh, great. Teacher, but, he he actually lived around the corner from me before he was famous. But I think he did that line in like one of his co- comedy routines. But it was like you know one of the chicks is. But I only need. But Ford, we only needed to be hugged. Oh, you got the bonus plan, baby. Oh. Yeah, I, I never met him, but again, he lived around the corner from me, and he was friendly with some people I knew. Cool. Oh, where were we? Uh, I think the most. I think most of the disdain for McFarlane really spins out of his gigantic ego, mixed with constantly trying to play the victim. He made a ridiculous amount of money while working for Marvel, more so than many other creators at Marvel. That, regardless of whether they were writers or artists, that at the time when McFarlane and the others left Marvel were actually putting out much better work than the Image Gang. John Byrne would have been writing and drawing Namor, Namor around this time. His writing and art were unquestionably better than this level of work from McFarlane. Yet McFarlane was making more money and then complaining about being the victim of unfair editorial restraint at the same time. As I said, I think his early Spawn stuff is the best of his career. And I think it's definitely the best stuff Image released in their initial launch. So as a creator, I'm not so down on him. But it just irks me that he became a millionaire while whining about being treated unfairly and putting out comics like this inconsistent junk. Couldn't agree more. I, I don't even have really a comment on that. <laughs> yeah. Just agree. That's yeah. all I can say about it. Paul made the comment that Lightfield could have used two more years in art school. 
well, he should have just spent some more time in art school. I think Lightfield was has been pretty proud and bragged that he has he has no formal art training. It shows, and he definitely <laughs> missed that correspondence course on feet. That's for sure. <laughs> the 1990s, at least as it pertains for a lot of Marvel comics published, and definitely the majority of Image comics, storytelling completely took a back seat, as did the comic itself. The real money was in selling off the original art, so gone were character moments and interaction to be replaced with splash pages of giant muscle-strewn characters standing there stiff like statues with grimaces on their face. The book... The books essentially became portfolios and original art catalogs. Those type of pages fetched big money, so artists stuck as many of those pages in as possible, making more money selling off the original art pages from a single issue than most of us today make in a year's salary. DC, on the other hand, remained relatively unscathed by this trend and put out some really fine comics during this time period, most of which, unfortunately, will never be reprinted. Hmm. Oh, yeah, I'm just trying to think. I'm trying to remember back to what DC was doing at the time, in the '90s. It's well, that was this would have been around the time of uh, a little, just a little bef- before the time of uh, uh, what you call it, uh, zero hour. Ah, yeah. I mean, this would have probably been about maybe two or three years before that. Hmm. Well, I think there was. I mean, yeah, I I think essentially he he's right about that. That it was Marvel and. Yeah, because Marvel had the big. Well, they had yeah, Lightfield was on X Force, and I remember that being and uh, at the tail end of New Mutants, and that blew Jim up. Jim Lee was on X Men. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, yeah. All right. Well, I'll I'll take us to the end here. Uh, I dug the Batman story from Batman Family. Like Scott, this is also in my list of issues to track down. I've slowly been piecing together a Batman Family run. I hope to have the whole series at some point, but man, these these sell high. Whenever I come across an issue of Batman Family in comic shops, they are practically they are typically priced ten to fifteen an issue, with issue one priced much higher. Uh, keep up the fantastic episodes of hilarious comic discussion of hilarious comic discussion entertainment and uh the last line kind of broke up so i can't really read it no, no i can read it from my oh okay i can't wait to see what book dr bill doesn't bring next and <laughs> as as this will be at the end of our episode you will have seen that dr bill didn't bring a book hey oh, shock hey dr bill won't even be in the beginning of the episode <laughs> Kyle Benning of the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun Podcast. As I said, I'm having trouble downloading and listening, but I recommend everybody listen to it because Kyle certainly, I believe, presents an intelligent point of view, and, and uh, I appreciate his his support on our show. And I will go see if I can track that out down myself because I didn't know about this until just now. So, Okay, I'm going to add Mike in. All right, and I think I'm going to bail. Don't be bailing. i got to go to the bathroom. So, you're going to bail when I add Bailey? <laughs> Okay. There was no pun there. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. 
and is a registered trademark of DiManzocor of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. I, I don't know. That's going to see. That's the. You know, this is always the every two every two two months. I go into uh, deep evil hibernation because of work. <laughs>